Hey everybody, welcome to the Lex G Podcast on John Carpenter. I was uh, watching YouTube the other night and went out of the room and came back and uh, whatever was next up in the queue just started auto-playing. It was some, I don't know, uh, kind of puff piece on Carpenter from like... I would assume based on, I think it was focusing on Ghosts of Mars era and it had Mark Kermode in his rare 1999 uh, Stephen St. Croix or Mark McGrath look. It was very Y2K era, but uh, some Carpenter documentary like that started playing and I sat there spellbound by it because I'll watch anything about John Carpenter and I love talking about Carpenter and I think pretty much everyone in my generation does and how much he meant to us and everything. There was a lady on... Uh, Film Twitter, like a film Twitter lady who's kind of opinionated as everybody is on Twitter. But a few years ago, she had a, you know, she's always taken down like the generic male opinions and stuff and the, you know, how, how overrun, at least at that time, film discourse was by the same voice over and over again. She had this very funny but snarky comment like, oh, gee, great, another mediocre white man trying to tell me about John Carpenter, which is totally true and fair that maybe we run it into the ground. But it really never gets old. He was one of those directors. It, to some degree, uh, he is kind of my favorite director in a way. Sometimes I say Tony Scott because of the Tony Scott, the visuals and the, you know, what he brought to editing and style and sheen and, um, you know, how imitated he is now. But anyway, that's a story for another day that might be coming up soon. But Carpenter, uh, especially as a kid, um, it just felt so cool. His movies, you know, were coming out, obviously, in the era of Lucas and Raiders and um, Superman and James Bond and Pink Panther and, of course, Spielberg, most famously. And this was the era of formative movies for me as a kid. And I loved and Rocky and all those things that were blockbusters that were so positive and very much of that late 70s, especially the 80s vibe to them. And there in the midst of that was Carpenter with this like great cynicism and great nihilism and I was like you know as, as a kid who was kind of a smart aleck who was a little bit of an outcast I kind of as great as like Raiders or Jaws or Close Encounters or any of that stuff was I gravitated to Carpenter and I was so fascinated by him as I've talked about too many times before on here when I was starting to piece together who directors were and what directors did there were a few names that came to the forefront that you would see you know when I was 8-10 years old and you would see little making of or they be on a talk show and I'd start to get an idea of what that meant to be a filmmaker and I've said before it was Spielberg obviously George Lucas obviously John Landis because he was always out in front and he was a funny guy and he was on the you know the Michael Jackson video where you got to see what directing was there was this making of thriller video I think I've talked about it before and you'd see Landis and you'd see what went into you know a film set which you didn't generally see as a nine ten year old kid in Maine or in Pittsburgh and the one that I was most fascinated by was John Carpenter because I had seen it was actually my well I had seen Halloween when I was really too young to see it my mom had it on and that music scared me to death I was probably like seven and it was on HBO and I was hiding behind our mustard colored chair I was so scared I made it I think watching it to the scene where the hand uh, where Michael escapes the uh the mental facility and his hand shatters that glass behind Nancy Stevens head. And I'd left behind the chair and would occasionally poke my head out. Not unlike Laurie Strode to watch a little more of it. And I was so spooked. And then by the next year, when it came on NBC, I was just, I had to see it. I was just obsessed with seeing this movie. And around that time I saw the fog. And then of all people, my dad was the reason I saw escape from New York. Cause my dad wasn't a big movie guy, but he liked, uh, for whatever reason he liked Isaac Hayes and he stayed up one night and watched it. He's like, you got to see this movie. Cause he got such a, 
a kick out of that part where there's the the Duke of New York's motorcade and they come through New York and he's got the disco ball and the chandelier and that Frank Doubleday dude uh, get who plays Romero who's a very over the top you know the guy who says uh, you're not in the air in 15 seconds he dies you come back in he dies that guy's so great uh, that motorcade scene that music and just the idea of Isaac Hayes as the Duke of New York it just cracked my dad up and he said you got to see this movie you got to see this movie and that movie became just an obsession with me when I was a kid um, and you know then the thing and there you know that on and on and um, actually Escape from New York led me back to Precinct 13 because it was you'd get that Malton book remember we'd all have that Malton book in the 80s and I was so mad and I was like shaking my fist because Escape from New York if I recall it only got two stars but at the end the tag to his review was like reminiscent of Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 which was smaller and better and I was like man if you think Escape from New York is only two stars Assault on Precinct 13 has got to be like a million stars so when it came on you know we didn't have this was even before we could rent movies I don't you know we didn't have their VCR yet so um, I had to wait for it to come on the movie loft we used to get the Boston stations in New England and uh there was this guy, Dana Hersey, who was this kind of uh, genial Robert Wagner looking dude who would host the movies in primetime in Boston. And, um, you know, if you didn't catch him on HBO or on is before VHS, you can see a lot of cool 70s movies for the first time. At least I did as a kid, uh, thanks to Dana Hersey. And, he, you know, he's we're going to watch Assault on Precinct. And I just loved it. It was so grim and so exciting to me. And it like that siege vibe and that up all night vibe. I don't even think I'd seen I hadn't even seen Night of the Living Dead yet. And I hadn't seen, you know, the obvious precedence to it like old westerns and how uh, howard hawks and rio bravo which it's sort of like a an homage to but to me it was all new it was so exciting and i was a kid staying up watching this dark movie with all this you know ex- these exciting shootouts and napoleon wilson and those gang members and again it was the same frank doubleday again as that part with the ice cream girl which was just traumatizing to a little kid <laughs> and i just from there i had to see dark star and then the thing the thing was something like you know we find out you know it's a movie that's beloved now and we all know the arc that it is you know taken on over the years from being sort of hated by critics in its day but i gotta say is like 11 year old 10 year old 11 year old kids when it came on hbo we just loved it we just thought it was like the coolest movie of all time it was so gross and scary anyway i would picture what's this john carpenter guy like because he was a little more secretive he was a little more evasive than you know like a landis or a lucas who you'd see on tv and i <laughs> so much of my life was based in my fascination with the emmett otter jug band christmas <laughs> when i was a kid so uh when there was something that's supposed to be dark and scary being 10 years old i always likened it to it had to be like the nightmare band from emmett otter like the river bottom nightmare band like when i would when someone would tell me music was going to be heavy i was like is it like the river bottom nightmare band is it scary like that uh so i pictured carpenter as like you know the scary guy with a synth and outer space with like wraparound shades the kind that like Lawrence fishburne had in death wish 2 like i don't know with a stash and a sig like he was sort of like i kind of i guess kind of pictured him like johnny fever and then when i finally saw him like he came on letterman he was all like kind of grumpy and cynical and he had the bad stash and he looked kind of not very happy to be there and he kind of it's one of the rare times where someone really does live up to your you know he wasn't from emma daughter's jug man christmas but he was very uh much what i expected everything i kind of wanted him to be and um yeah, I just he was just it for me when I was a kid, and especially growing up in the '80s. And Snake Plissken was just kind of my idol. I thought that was the coolest thing. That movie, uh, yeah, that was kind of my. I'll say it probably eight times in this podcast, but it was sort of my Star Wars and the thing and the sombrero and Kurt and that cast with like you know those actors like Fuchs and Norris and. Um, 
TK Carter and the roller skates and ah, it's just it was the best. Those are the best movies to grow up on. Obviously with Carpenter, there's always sort of the elephant in the room that his you know, he's long outlasted his directorial career after Ghost of Mars. There's, you know, basically just The Ward. Well, a couple of Showtime movies in The Ward. And mostly it's a lot of sort of the legend of him being happily cynical and happily just, you know, he'll make very funny comments that he loves when they remake his movies because he just puts his hand out and a check appears. And, you know, film geeks will do our jokes about how he's sitting up in the hills smoking cigs and eating fried chicken and watching basketball and playing video games. And we like that because it's part of the, you know, our vision of him as this cynical guy who like all right if hollywood wasn't interested in where he was he was just you know gonna peace out and you know he's happy with his legacy and we're happy with the movies we got and yes that's all true but sometimes it is a little bit sad that um you know we always wonder you always wonder if he could have done one or two more i mean i don't i don't say this in any disparaging way but much like any great artist you don't really have a lot of hope that he's gonna come back and truly knock one out of the park but if you think back to a pretty close comp to someone like george romero in his very last years when he was doing those you know kind of extraneous dead sequels like the land of the dead survival of the dead diary none of those were particularly on par with uh his original works and everything but it was still you kind of were happy you got him you know it's kind of like nice to see the old man have a nice little rally i mean we'll still even if like whatever that my soul to take isn't Wes craven's finest hour and scream four was a little bit of a run through as a fan as a genre fan you're just happy that the movies are there and it always would have been nice to get one more out of them in this podcast i'm gonna refer a few times to a book it's a book called the prince of darkness by gilles boulanger and it's very much worth uh tracking down i'm sure it's long out of print it's a book that's a book length interview with john carpenter by the author and you know he talks about where he grew up and his influences especially howard hawks obviously and the difference between howard hawks and john ford and how he thought ford was kind of dated and too earnest whereas he was really uh he really took to the cynicism and the sort of you know, the the macho vibe of Howard Hawks movies and the team and the women being feisty and the movies having this sarcasm that was much more modern than what he got from the John Ford movies. It's sort of an interesting thing to read about. But in this book, it's a, you know, a lengthy interview. And in the early years, you can even when he's talking about movies from decades before, like his experiences at USC and Dark Star and Halloween, you can just feel the enthusiasm for movies. You can feel the affection and how, you know, even for a kind of a dark and cynical guy, you know, how, you know, how laser focused he was and, you know, what movies meant to him and, you know, how he just went for it, really. And then in the later chapters, um, the book becomes what you would expect from Carpenter, a lot of sort of sour grapes and a lot of cynicism about the business and the industry. Anyway, it's just something that I'll probably refer to in and out of this. And I don't you'll never find this book, probably. But it's just something where, you know, I get a lot of his uh, I don't know, for a year or something. At one point, it was my book to read in the bathroom and get my Carpenter wisdom. And it was endlessly re-readable and uh, I would return to it over and over again. And so that's where a lot of my uh, I don't know. Maybe some of these riffs will be born out of things that he said in that book. So I might come back to that. And when he talks about going to USC, you know, coming from Bowling Green, Kentucky, where he talks about living in a log cabin, you know, being kind of a bumpkin hippie type and get to L.A. And he has a very, very touching passage where he talks about where he came from, was very prejudiced and very uh, old fashioned. And to be in Los Angeles and what Los Angeles meant to him, which is something that, you know, 
resonates with me not to ever make it about myself or anything but i'm just like it's touching like how he was awakened by the city and coming to usc and getting to he talks about how he met uh he had got to meet his idols like hawks and ford and polanski came there and hitchcock he talks about how they would sit around outside the film school or out the little outdoor area and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and he'd get to ask questions of all these legends of cinema um his enthusiasm in these early chapters talking about growing up and when he first started making Dark Star and, you know, how he and Dan O'Bannon, the way that the kind of machinations they had to do to sell it, which are very interesting. And then it kind of I'm always fascinated by people selling screenplays because it seems like the most impossible thing ever. But it just this book just sort of offhands like he was just whipping them out right in Blood River for the Duke and getting to hang out with my uh, the Duke and his family, which like who gets to do that when they're a 24 year old hippie from Kentucky. And uh, he talks about like selling uh, Eyes of Laura Mars and writing Escape from New York in 74 and you're like like how? He was so young when he was doing this stuff and he was just kind of like I don't know. He was catching breaks that just kind of are mind blowing and you know just see one after the other when later in the book after the thing after Big Trouble in Little China especially after Memoirs of an Invisible Man after that and oh, he still is kind of with it with the in the mouth of madness but man when he gets to those later chapters he just starts shutting down the guy's trying to ask him questions about like is there any uh any uh, symbolism about the native americans to go some mars he's given like one or one word answers like no i wouldn't know no no idea leave me alone <laughs> like he gets so cold by the end and in some ways that book uh as enjoyable as it is it it there's a part on Village of the Damned where he talks about when he made The Fog, he had just married Adrian Barbeau and filming it in Northern California, this beautiful landscape and this idea of the radio DJ. He had all these romantic notions. So when they did Village of the Damned, this was like 15 years later, they shot it in the exact same part of town, basically, in Marin County. And he said, like, all of his romantic notions were beaten out of him by life. He was miserable. It's like, man, do you ever cut yourself a break? It's so sad to read these things. You know, at this point, even though he keeps going with the music, and obviously he has that EP credit <laughs> on every Halloween movie, and he just did the score to Firestarter, which had to have been a weird experience, like doing the score to this movie that he kind of got fired from 40 years ago, and then they make a new version, not by him. And he has to, you know, he probably wanted to do it just to, you know, his musical chops and whatnot. But the new Firestarter, if I have not reviewed it for you, is not very good. It's very, very lame. And if I had made that movie, to to know that John Carpenter was going to be scoring my movie and pouring over my dailies for a movie that everyone who made it had to know this was fairly lifeless. And Carpenter's score sort of gives a little, you know, it's a nice throwback sound to it that kind of livens it up a little but uh knowing the, the baleful eye of john carpenter knowing he was out there scoring my movie i just pictured him being like guys guys your movie is fucking terrible but um it's great that he's still out there and the you know he's so great at like q a's and interviews um man there's one interview if you can ever find on the internet that's terrifying some guy it hasn't done his homework and calls Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes. And from that moment, JC is just over this poor kid and it's skin crawling to watch. But um, going back to what I'm saying there, like, yeah, there is a little bit of that asterisk that his career, you know, it had a great run and these movies will be remembered forever. And these, you know, incredibly loyal fans and dorks like me. And it begs the question, like, do we expect too much of our favorite directors? Do we expect, um, 
our filmmakers to be immortal and still be, you know, there's a buddy of mine on Twitter who's always like, why isn't Dean Cundy shooting the top level movies? And it's like, dude, the guy's got to be like 77. What do you want him running around like oil barges, chasing transformers? Like you get to be an old, you don't expect your dad to still be salesman of the year when he's 78. You sort of grant, you know, the it's only in filmmaking, you know, and a few other things, presidents and stuff where we still want a 78 year old guy to be at the top of his game. So he more than earned sort of, you know, lazing into that semi-retirement and doing his music and everything. But it's always, to me, just, you know, a little bit of melancholy there that around Ghosts of Mars. He had those couple of masters of horror after that. Uh, the La Fine Absolute du Monde. How many times do they say that in the... Uh, there's the one that Drew and Swan wrote, and I was friends with them back then, or a little before then, but uh, especially Drew. I knew Drew. I didn't really know Swan as well, but uh, met him a bunch of times. <laughs> it's just like, it was, that was really surreal. Um, I had been in Hollywood, like... I don't know, eight, nine, ten years, and it was the first time anyone I re- actually knew had something, and it was to be made by my idol, John Carpenter. It was very surreal. I wouldn't say I was like jealous or bitter, like, oh, that because I know Drew uh, certainly works the room and everything, and had written a ton of stuff. But I was like, how, how, how? But uh, that first one, which is really good with Norman Reedus, is um, I would say. You know, after Ghost of Mars, at least there's one other thing that, you know, he's kind of firing on, you know, it's it's a run through in a way of a lot of his stylistic things. And I think they have fun with that. But, uh, man, I'm kind of I should be lightning rounding these, shouldn't I? Instead of going to 2005 or whatever I'm doing, this is like the most uh, lackadaisical. uh, I don't even know this is a lightning round, but you probably do want me to go through some of these in some semblance of an order. I've talked about Halloween a million times and um, so many of these, you know what I'm going to say. And I just felt like this one might be more of an ambling one to just sort of. You know, just go through it more in general. But if you want, like, the quick, super fast lightning round, like, Dark Star is probably in some, you know, it's definitely has historical value as the beginnings of his style for sure. And um, it's fun to watch to kind of, you know, if you know a little bit about Dan O'Bannon and Return of the uh, Living Dead and that he worked on Alien, and you can kind of see a little bit of what's O'Bannon's and what's Carpenter's. A Carpenter has the directorial credit there i'm sure that was a point of some contention because there's certainly a lot of o'bannon in that movie too it's probably why carpenter i don't it's one of the ones you don't go back to a lot other than for the value of it but you know what the historical value of it but you know what when i was a kid i thought it was really cool it's very sinister you know some of the early the keyboard sound some of the stuff i don't know that benson arizona is definitely carpenter humor there's a fistful of carpenter humor in there with that that music choice like i said the characters all have the big hair and they're you know it was very for its low budget you know being a usc movie they did achieve something very uh, there's something about that movie that has a quality of very, you know, weirdness. And it's um, uh, it's somewhat like I said, it has some sinister elements to it, but it's also very tongue in cheek. But uh, it's kind of a striking movie. It's having started as a student film and they expanded it out. And like I said, that elevator shaft sequence is truly the best part about it. And you have to remember, you know, it's a movie that ostensibly is kind of a satire of sorts of 2001, but it's very much coming out of the type of movies they made after easy rider, these sort of stoner, you know, uh, counterculture laid back sort of questioning authority type of movies. That's very carpenter. Um, I don't go back to it. I don't think I've seen dark star in 20 years. I put it on on Pluto not long ago thinking this would be fun at night. And I don't know that you get to that part where he's playing the bottles, which I can't remember if they cut that out. There's a shorter cut of that movie that, they said was 
They said that the 85-minute the version was sort of padded and the 68-minute version, no, go with the 85 because it feels like a real movie. I sort of miss the dorky stuff like that and the little character embellishments. It is an effective movie. It's, it's nowhere near, obviously, Assault on Precinct 13 is just like a... Assault on Precinct 13 is obviously a huge leap. It's, you know, in scope, which Dark Star isn't. Um, it's, you know, shot in, you know, these Los Angeles locales is sort of what's striking about to me, those like bombed out neighborhoods and this under this beautiful, like unforgiving sun and that use of Panavision. There's that great part at the beginning. Uh, toward the beginning, when the gang members all meet up to go about their day, they're going to, you know, wreak all this havoc. Going back again to the idea of the Western and, and Carpenter using these motifs from the classic Westerns, you got the two guys on opposite sides of the law who come together to fight off this siege. And it's, as many people have said, it's Rio Bravo. It's a lot of Night of the Living, Living Dead, too. But just the atmosphere, the mood of this movie. And people today talk about the vibe and the atmosphere so much in movies. There's a stretch at the beginning of this, you know, the, this street gang, which, you know, Street Thunder, I think they're called. They're going to come together. The very opening scene, they're doing a raid on a police station and they get shot up by the cops. And so they're going to wreak havoc around L.A. or around South Los Angeles. And again, Frank Doubleday. And there's this part where all the gang members meet up out in some like bombed out type neighborhood and you get this guy with a big head of michael lembeck hair and beard coming with a case of gun he's got a gun and a case and they meet up with that whatever that music is and they get in the, the old amc matador and go around town with the scope pointing the scope at kids and homeless guys and it's just terrifying for a movie that's not a horror movie there are elements in there that definitely you know that sinister vibe that carpenter could bring in halloween and the fog and the thing it's there in this movie that's you know sort of a western sort of an urban action movie the girl getting shot which is one of the richard sisters it's, it's one of the um, Paris and Nikki ants. Uh, it's either Kim or Kyle. It's the one who isn't in Halloween. <laughs> Whoever that Joseph Sommer ripoff is, as the dad is very good. Um, you know, when he chases after the gang and they hole up at the police station and Austin Stoker's performance. And in some ways, that's a lot of it's something with our color blind casting today. You wouldn't think much of it, but at the time in the seventies being coming out of the exploitation genre and Night of the living dead with the leading man, the, you know, the good guy, there's a little bit of that reflected, but Austin Stoker's performance is so, uh, Austin Stoker's performance as that cop is so, uh, I'm forgetting the cop's name now for some reason. I remember the other, you know, uh, what's his name? Darwin Jostin is uh, Napoleon. What Napoleon Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Carpenter always has to have those, those great character names, which if I wrote them, I'd be so embarrassed. Napoleon Wilson, snake Plissken, desolation Williams. And they're all very much the same type. And in all these movies, they have, you know, they're sort of foil on the other side of the law. And it like in escape from New York, you have Kurt Russell and Bob Houck is Lee Van Cleef. And Carpenter said, these two guys are exactly the same guy on other side of the coin. And they're, there's a certain respect, you know, the grudging respect. This is very much out of the Howard Hawks tradition, out of Western tradition. And this siege and the way that, you know, just the descent on this building, the nighttime cinematography, this movie so like blue and black and purple and that score, that score is so awesome. If you've seen the Gaspar Noe movie Love, there's a part where the main guy descends into this sex club and they crank up the... Uh, the theme to Assault on Precinct. Well, obviously the, the theme is used better in the actual Precinct 13, but for a, an homage, for a shout out to it, the way it's used in the No Way movie is so brilliant. It's like it, you get so pumped up immediately just hearing it. Um, like I said, I love this one. Halloween, I've talked about Halloween a zillion times and I did a whole Halloween podcast. I mean, uh, like I said, I saw it when I was really young, it was sinister, that opening, the slits in the eyes, that first sting is what's great when you see that outside of the Myers house when little Michael 
that first shot, that POV shot of the house, and you get that off-kilter sting. And as he you know, goes through the house, and you see this sort of sinister house with the long candlesticks. By the way, I like in the Halloween, um, what was it, Halloween Kills last year, that the gay couple had moved into the Myers house. It was what must be 60 years later, and they haven't changed the furnishings. They still have the candlesticks from 1963. You might want to change those guys. Um but uh, yeah, when Michael kills you know Judith at the beginning, all that lead up stuff with Lori and Annie and Linda and the speed kills and with the LTD, he's he's driving an LTD. It's like the awesomest thing ever in the screech. And as kids, we would always have the bet: like, do you see his face in that part? Do you not see his face? And to this day, every time I watch it, I can't remember if you do see his face. Um, you know, a really stupid thing is. Talk about how bad transfers when I was a kid. We used to watch this on like 133 on VHS on HBO. It was all panned and scanned. It was always had this always had this faded sheen. I never knew till like the late 90s how beautiful that movie was. Seeing it in widescreen, seeing the Dean Cundy, the colors, the you know, the, the strong blues, the strong oranges. It just looked like gray murk on there was this media VHS. And when Michael would trail across the screen toward the end, his knife would leave this trail of of like smear behind it. And in the part at the beginning where um, Lori's hearing about fate in, in her classroom and she looks out, you could only really see, I always only thought only the car was out there. I did. I somehow saw this movie 50 times before I saw it properly in a theater and saw his big dumbass head and that scary mask sk- uh, staring at her. Uh, I thought it was just the car she was seeing. I didn't notice him somehow because that was how bad the transfer was. But um, yeah, I love all his little pranks. You know, I, I did a whole Halloween podcast. He's a prankster. He's zany and wacky. He's like charming. And I love the way he can just appear. And when he's out you know, her bedsheets, like, doesn't she see him spring back behind the bedsheets? You know, and of course, the laundry room and Annie and um, Donald Pleasance is overacting is amazing. Um, in there, by the way, there are two TV movies. I've never seen the Elvis TV movie with Kurt Russell. There is Someone's Watching Me, which is not a, you know, popular Carpenter movie by any stretch. It did get a DVD release at some point, and you can probably stream it. And it's interesting because it came out the same year as Halloween and you watch Halloween and see an auteur at like the peak of his powers, a peak of his style, you just a complete, you know, statement as an artist. And then you watch someone's watching me, which was like a, a TV movie for one of the three networks. I can't remember which one. And you got like Lauren Hutton and David Jansen, these kind of mainstream stars. It obviously has to be shot in one, three, three. It has obvious commercial breaks and there's a, there's some flair. There's some Hitchcocky and flair and a cool setting in this high rise. I think high rise was one of the alternate titles for it. There's a sort of like, like kind of like risque for its time use of Adrian Barbeau as Lauren Hutton's like lesbian babe friend who kind of puts the mood, you know, kind of has a little girl crush on her, which is a little different for 1978, but, and Charles Cyphers is in there, but uh, it's interesting to see when he was like, you know, shackled by the demands of network television and not getting to shoot in scope. He brings what he can to it, but you feel like you're watching like the CBS late movie. Like you're watching like an episode of McGarrett in some way. And it's, you know, it's cool. It's, it's, I've seen it a bunch of times trying to reconcile it with the filmography, but it just, but it never really transcends its origins as a TV movie. It's very obvious um, that his vision was kind of compromised on that, but I'm sure he got paid really well. Well, around that time, there's some interesting ones where he wrote the screenplay, but didn't make the movie like, Eyes of Laura Mars, he's talked a little bit about, and that ended up being someone rewrote the whole thing for him, and uh, Irvin Kirshner did it, and it's a pretty decent movie. Um, you can see a little bit of the Carpenter. You you think you you know it's one of those things you think oh this has got to be Carpenter, and then you would probably find out it really wasn't. The other dude totally rewrote it. If you watch Eyes of Laura Mars, you want to believe it's all his genius, but if you read that 
book on Carpenter or any interview, he says like they completely, you know, he did. He the big thing he remembers about it is like they wanted it to be a New York movie, and he he's like I'm a hillbilly from Kentucky, and I moved to L.A. I don't know anything about New York. Black Moon Rising is another screenplay he did about a really fast car with Tommy Lee Jones. It's kind of interesting. He wrote two movies that he didn't direct that Tommy Lee Jones ended up being in. And he kind of, at some point, Tommy Lee Jones was discussed for Snake Plissken, which I love, you know, everyone loves Tommy Lee Jones. He'd certainly be terrifying and menacing, but that it, just on the hair basis alone, there's no way Tommy Lee Jones's limp quaff could ever pass as Snake Plissken. But really his next big movie, of course, after Halloween was The Fog, which some people at the time, it seemed like, I, granted, it's his fourth movie, not his second, but it seemed like after the big heights of Halloween, it was just good. It was just okay. And he's talked himself about being a little disappointed with the first cut. And he and Tommy Lee Wallace kind of had to work some magic on it in the editing. And they did some reshoots and kind of pump up some gore. Um, you can kind of tell. I think when you rewatch it now, you can see some of the elements that maybe, I don't know, at least if you're thinking about it that way, you can see some of those scenes, like some of those gougings and stuff. You wonder if some of that was added later to sort of punch up the horror elements. I think it was Ebert who had a pretty good, uh, had a pretty good take on this that like Michael Myers is such an unstoppable force and such a, you know, he's the boogeyman basically. And then for your next movie, there's something about fog that is, is as beautiful as it can be on film and is these shots and that score and that location and the lighthouse, the lighthouse adds so much to that movie. Um, you know, all the atmosphere and everything is so great, but in the end, you either have a fog bank or you have the guys within the fog bank who are either ghosts or they're actual physical entities. And at the end with the glowing eyes, I mean, that's so sinister, but there is a question of like, wait, wasn't it the fog? You know, it's the fog is just concealing uh, Blake and whoever the guys are who are coming back. So I don't know, there's sort of a push-pull there between the sort of mythical element and just sort of a literal ghost story, but it's still... I don't know. I think it's really good. It's underrated. I, it's one of the few movies I think when I was a kid I did think was genuinely scary. That part at the beginning with John Houseman and the stopwatch and that the quote from Poe, I believe. And then, uh, you know, for I got to say one thing here. There's a great interview. It's very funny and it's very Carpenter and it's very frustrating because you want them to kind of have better taste sometimes. But they interview him on the set of Halloween and this makes the Internet rounds occasionally. And they're asking him about the other movies of the day. How about Lucas? How about Altman? How about Spielberg? And he's just talking so much shit. They're like, what about Lucas? He's like, well, American Graffiti is a great movie. That was a great movie. It's like, man, you, nothing for Star Wars? Absolutely nothing? Man, like the stern wrath of Carpenter Judgment is something. And then Spielberg, he lights him up about Close Encounters, which I'll get to in a second. And then Altman, he just says Altman's masturbatory. He's not impressed at all. It's like, God, dude, it's and he, they says if everything in movies could have stopped around 1948, he'd have been happy. So even in I keep referring to this book that you're never going to read, but he talks about Hitchcock and he's like Hitchcock's a one note director. Once you get his thing, it's all over with, you know, the gimmick and who cares. And I'm like, man, you're even flipping about Hitchcock. You're flipping about Alpen. You're, you know, uh, Spielberg's no great shakes either. But uh, he, he bags on uh, Close Encounters in this interview, which I find very interesting because i as much as i love you know the fog that opening set piece is close encounters i mean it really is that the nighttime and the electronic devices coming to life and the you know the 
the railroad crossings going up and cars going up and down to the point where just rattling those things off, I can't remember in my head which ones were in Close Encounters and which ones were in The Fog. It's the same sequence. But, um, man, he had nothing for Spielberg in this era. And I think later he kind of has that grudge about E.T. versus The Thing. But, uh, yeah, sometimes his taste can be... Anyway, The Fog, um, yeah, you got Cyphers, you got Tom Atkins, Barbeau. Uh, you got, you know, basically his... At Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, as the hitchhiker, the hot babe out hitchhiking. And then Tom Atkins driving around, no stash in this one. And he's pounding cans of Budweiser in his vintage truck, picking up 19-year-old girls. I don't know something about the use of this in Halloween three, the use of Tom Atkins in these movies as a ladies man is absolutely hilarious to me. I love Tom Atkins. Uh, Charles Cypher's got the super comfortable sweater when the fog bank, when they knock on the door and he gets killed. It's, it's so scary. And to go back and Adrian Barbeau really holds that movie together with a great leading lady performance. Um, and that part where Tom, anytime you get Tom Atkins to say the word doubloon is always a four star movie. And Darwin Jostin shows up, Two in this is that kind of the corner and there's that one Michael Myers-esque sequence with Jamie Lee that that does feel like sort of a reshoot where the thing kind of comes up and does the Michael Myers shape you know in in that great carpenter rack focus where she's on one side you see his body with the sheet come up off the bed or come up off the slab of course you also got uh Hal Holbrook in there is Father Malone kind of the boozy old priest who's going to be the last uh you know the last uh, descendant of the survivors that the guys from the fog bank are really out there out for and uh, Carpenter himself does some extremely bad acting at the beginning of this as Bennett um, Hal Holbrook's uh, I don't know some guy who helps out around the church and Carpenter glides in and does some terrible acting asking asking for his paycheck which ended up being kind of a uh, I don't know an omen of sorts for his uh his later years. Uh, it's great. One last thing I want to say about The Fog is I love this idea of the AM radio station playing the big band music on the coast or along like a coastal town. It is always, as I said earlier, he, he talked about how this movie had some of his romantic notions about things like that. And when I was a kid, I was sort of spellbound by that atmosphere. I used to listen late at night. I would listen to like AM radio. And, you know, this was like early 80s and they'd still be playing, you know, that like Glenn Miller type old big band jazz swing type music and it reminds me you know this movie and clint and play misty for me another northern northern california dj movie where he's like you know you know on the water with this beautiful old timey music it's just such a great setting um it adds this layer of sort of like quaint nostalgia to this you know it's a horror movie and it's spooky and everything but there's still just this great um i don't know i just love that kind of thing escape from new york i talked about earlier but as a kid this was my favorite movie i just went nuts for it it was sort of i've said this probably about a few other movies too but kind of like my star wars in a way i just had it i had it memorized and right before right before we got a vhs player or a uh, right before we got a vcr this would be on hbo constantly like when you had hbo in like 82 83 you would look through the cable guide the hbo guide and you'd see like you'd see like escape from new york and nighthawks and looker and wolf and these were like the big movies that were on constantly that year that i loved as a kid and it would be like escape from new york airs the first third fifth eighth eleventh thirteenth twenty first and i'd stay up trying to watch it every time at some point i had a uh 
M- not unlike the uh, tape recorder that McCready has in uh, The Thing, the next movie we'll talk about. <laughs> like, I had a tape recorder like that, and I held, I put it on top of that. Of our, we had, like, that Poltergeist-style 1982 console TV. They used to have those that were, like, a TV built into this wood box that would sit on your floor. It would be 950 pounds, <laughs> and I put my tape recorder on top of the TV to record Escape from New York. And I think, you know, I'd have to hurriedly flip, you know, so there'd be, like, I'd lose, like, five seconds of, of of great material when I'd have to flip the cassette over after 45 minutes or whatever it was, but I had it strewn across two cassettes and I'd just sit there when, when I couldn't be watching it. I'd listen to it on my, on my tape recorder with headphones and I'd be basking in just the sound and that music. And uh, yeah. And then my, this was maybe the first, this was the first uh, VHS, you know, over the counter VHS, you know, cassette that my dad, when we got the VCR, he went and bought me it. It was like this Avco Embassy VHS Embassy with like a white had this white box that descended into black down at the bottom and it had the picture of Kurt and the Statue of Liberty toppled over and he's firing his gun kind of into the ground with Pleasance and Barbeau and this had all the great characters from Lee Van Cleef as Hauk and uh, Tom Atkins as Remy and uh, Brain and Maggie and the Duke of New York and it was so just to a kid it was just so. I didn't realize one thing about this movie. I didn't realize as a kid is how tongue in cheek it is, how playful and funny and silly things like the 69th street bridges and that mind bridge and cabbie played by Ernest Borgnine still listening to his, again, that like big band American bandstand type of music. I just thought this was as a kid, I thought it was scary and dead serious. And like I said, John Carpenter was this nefarious evil dude from outer space beaming this movie down to us. And then you watch it now and it's very goofy. I think escape from LA later, Later, kind of brought out, you know, because I was older and I, when I, you know, got to that, I was like, oh, this is very tongue in cheek and silly. And then I realized, wait, maybe the original one kind of was too in a lot of ways. But as a kid, I was just spooked out by it. And that, you know, like I said, the Romero guy and uh, the drunk when uh, that great part where Snake uh, Carpenter talks about this a lot in his book. And in the commentary, too, there's that part where he uh, goes to that old-timey review show and they're playing that that New York song on the piano and it's a little campy and Ernest, Ernest Borgnine's bobbing his head, but then he descends down these stairs into, like, the bowels of the underworld of uh, this horrible New York New York world. And there's these this sort of really ugly scene where these dudes are passing this girl around and Snake just keeps on trucking. And they sort of talk about this in the commentary. They're like, this is kind of a key to who Snake Plissken was. Like, this isn't his fight he's a total like loner and uh at least at this part of the movie he's just out for himself you know this is his you know this is not his issue he's going to keep on moving rather than jumping in with like both fists and fight off these guys from this girl who's you know that movie's carpenter himself says the scene's a little more ambiguous than you think as to what's going on there to leave a little doubt but it's kind of a weird moment that's uh it's kind of who make what makes that character who he is and then by the time you get to the movie, much like a Howard Hawks movie, much like a classic kind of Western, he's picked up, whether he wants to or not, this ragtag crew. And when Harry Dean Stanton gets killed, then there's this moment, this great moment at the end of this movie that's very much a Howard Hawks moment, very much just like earning the respect, you know, kind of this idea that the women step up and, you know, they're just as macho and badass as the dudes where she's you know, Harry Dean Stanton, her boyfriend has just died and they're alone on this bridge with uh, Isaac Hayes coming at them and he hands over this gun and like she's earned his respect and she's completely badass. And this is like, 
this character who started out the movie completely out for himself and ends the movie too completely out for himself where he does this very awesomely nihilistic act in this one that he one-ups in LA and this one he rips up the Memorex cassette with the you know tritium or whatever is you know the the key to the nuclear thing that Donald Pleasance whatever the MacGuffin is um, after you know Donald Pleasance kind of high hats him at the end of the movie where he just says you know a lot of people died just for you what do you have to say and Pleasance gives some bullshit or answer and he rips up the tape that could have saved the world it's such a great um, that's so carpenter so cynical it's so nihilistic and then the way they do the end of Escape from LA which is a much goofier movie but I always thought you know and Roger Ebert loved Escape from LA which we'll get to sort of in a minute but they one up it uh, they do it better at the end of Escape from L.A., even though it's very cartoonish. What the end of Escape from L.A. suggests is complete nihilism and anarchy. It's kind of a subversive ending for a very silly movie that kind of turns, you know, it's interesting the way L.A. plays with the things in New York. And, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. You know, he goes through kind of the same arc where he's a loner out for himself and he hates everybody at the beginning of L.A. as well. But there's this great scene with Valeria Golino and he obviously... You know, there's a scene in here with Season Hubley, and it's kind of the same thing. He, you know, some things kind of do break through and earn Snake's respect, which is a lot of the fun of both movies, is seeing this, you know, iconoclastic uh, loner character sort of grudgingly become part of the team. And that's, again, sort of a Hawks kind of thing. And also just, yeah, also just like, like I said, the whole movie taking place in that, you know, the shortened time frame and the overnight. And then there's a great, you know, when... um you know, he meets Duke of New York and uh, Isaac Hayes, you know, I heard you were dead and knocks him out. And then it goes to be an in the day and something about this whole movie being a nighttime nightmare, uh, black and blue sheen kind of thing. When it switches to the daytime is almost even more sinister when you get that matte painting that uh, James Cameron did of the park and the, the guys running out there for the cassette and those helicopters and um yeah, and oh, there's a great shot of like Lee Van Cleef where he's up on the wall and the whole big ass city behind him. And it's obviously like a matte kind of shot or something, but it's so great. It's just such a, I don't know, some, when you get to L.A. and they have all that kind of regrettable CGI, it really especially makes you appreciate the you know, like the smart matte work, the smart practical work that goes into New York. And uh, there's also <laughs> when the president's plane crashes and Donald Pleasant's like uh, has the escape pod, which looks like an orange Tic Tac. When I was a kid, I was thought that escape pod looked delicious i wish it came in candy form but uh when the plane's head barreling into new york and it's going to crash land there's a dude who's in the u.s police force who's up on that wall that we later see halk on and he does the most if it's possible to do mugging while wearing a quiet riot uh, bang your head mask the dude watches the who watches the plane come in he's just staring at it and following it and he's doing like a, a pantomime of just kind of complete overacting of watching this plane crash it's for like like whoever that extra was really uh, earned his earned his keep or earned his place in film history with that bit of uh, pantomime overacting. Uh, the thing, obviously, this has kind of become everybody's favorite. I can't really argue that Escape from New York is a better movie than The Thing. Cause obviously, The Thing structurally script characters, the the you know the intelligence, the filmmaking, the sheen, the Dean Cundey, that music that 
is Ennio Morricone for the most part, but the best parts of it that we kind of all remember, apparently Carpenter tossed out. I don't know I've, if you listen to the, the Morricone soundtrack to it, a lot of that like Swami organ, you know, stuff is kind of, you know, pushed to the side in the actual movie. And you just get that redundant, dun, 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 which starts right away. It gets in your head with that great crooked shot of the, of the helicopter and chasing that, that dog, that husky or whatever it is. Yeah, that whole cast is kind of like a lot of guys in this that aren't really name actors. I mean, there's like Norris, who was in Hunter and whoever Fuchs was. And then there was Windows is that guy from Injustice for All, who was kind of the Mark Ruffalo of 1980. He was also, also in The Warriors. What's that guy's name? Thomas Waits, T.K. Carter on the roller skates. I mean, I talked a little bit about that earlier. And this was such a great introduction to Keith David and he and Kurt together. Just perfect in this movie. Um, and that. Obviously, the blood test is just this movie as a kid was it made you very uh, squeamish because it really I mean, obviously, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but those effects were really out there and like kind of shocking. And I saw it when I was 10 and I was like startled by, you know, I'd seen I thought I'd seen some pretty grown up horror movies at this point. And like I said, I'd seen Alien with the stomach you know, the alien coming through the stomach, which was pretty gory and poltergeist with the face peeling probably saw around this time. I can't remember which one came first, but there were a couple things that kind of shook me as a kid, but this bit, especially that the part with Norris with the paddles going through the stomach and the neck stretching out and that little bubble of pus or whatever that Rob Bottin did all that stuff is amazing. It still holds up today. And it's so scary in the spider head. And, um, what's his name is Palmer there that <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding. Um, what is that guy's name? God, I wish I could remember that actor's name. He's also in uh, Light Sleeper, and he was in... Uh, he was the dude who... <laughs> that guy made me mad years later, because he was the guy who really came out against um, Catherine Bigelow and Zero Dark Thirty. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But that, I guess that guy... David Clennon, he's very political, very leftist, and I remember he was very offended by Zero Dark Thirty, which whatever, but uh, that's become his legacy <laughs> to me, and I want his legacy to be Light, Se- Light Sleeper and The Thing. This guy's just a great actor. Um and Kurt with the, like I said, the sombrero and cheating bitch where he's playing chess and the, you know, drinking his can of Budweiser. <laughs> I'm going up to my shack to get drunk. And as a 10 year old, 11 year old, I had to have Carpenter, not John Carpenter goggles, but carpent, literal Carpenter goggles that they have when they do the flamethrower parts. And he's got them on with, with the hoodie and uh, those nighttime scenes, the way the snow is lit, that Dean Cundy cinematography. And if I can talk about this for a minute, um, was there another con- after this one, Dean Cundy was a cinematographer who did, obviously, Halloween, The Fog. He had this great, colorful way of shooting things. He's just such a beautiful cinematographer. And then after, kind of in this era, he did Big Trouble in Little China. But at some point, he kind of moved. Not the Carpenter himself wasn't the big leagues, but he sort of made a leap to, like, Back to the Future. Shot some Spielberg movies. Famously, he did Jurassic Park. And I'll get to this. Well, maybe I'll just get to this now. Some of the later Carpenter movies starting with like Prince of Darkness, they live, both look great. They're shot by Gary Kibbe, who's a decent, you know, n- nothing, not to besmirch the guy's artistry at all, but I just feel like the compositions in these early ones, Escape, Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, some of the later ones, Kibbe was like a handsome cinematographer, but sometimes it had a little bit of an overlit kind of TV feel. He kind of had some, kind of some signature Kibbe shots that were very low angle, very wide, and... They were fine, but sometimes it just looked a little... The movies looked a little broader. They looked a little sometimes tackier in some of the later years. And Cundy had this way of shooting this stuff. The smart blocking, the compositions. Um, 
Yeah, the th- and the thing is just like the epitome of this. And some, to some degree, I didn't appreciate it when I was young because I would watch this on HBO and on washed out VHSs. Uh, you'd, you'd rent it at the video store, it'd be all washed out or would have kind of this, the, like MCA Universal movies of that era always look terrible on TV, always look terrible on VHS. But I think later when there was like a widescreen VHS and then DVD, it was kind of a revelation, you know, for a movie I'd seen probably a hundred times by then. It was like seeing it anew, like 15 years later or whatever it was have been to see it properly you know properly widescreen this this sheen is just i don't know this this is for most people the very best the carpenter ever did i know it's the movie that he seems to be both the most proud of and the most hurt by that it was taken very badly in its day famously he got fired like i said i referenced this earlier he got fired from firestarter over it and he took it very hard and um you know time has proven this to be kind of his masterpiece you know it's not a specifically a remake of the original it's kind of goes back to the short story of who goes there one interesting thing about this is this one actually is written by somebody else i think this is like john carpenter's ultimate auteur statement it's the actual screenplay credit is to bill lancaster who's just sort of a, a gigging 70s screenwriter who did bad news bears and breaking training so as great as it is i just when i watch escape from new york when there's cheesy lines about like fresno bob and you know i heard of you and you know the how the part where Hulk calls in uh kurt and tells them all about himself two purple hearts leningrad and siberia all of that sort of intentionally dorky dialogue is very much carpenter i'm sure he did a polish and i'm sure a lot of what is in the thing i remember when i was in high school at a filmmaking class and this one the you could take a little filmmaking class in my high school god knows how and no one took it seriously but i was all into it i had the eight millimeter i was doing splicing and we did this little crappy movie called everything and more and i said i want to direct it i want to direct it and i tried to make some of the shots look purple and some of them look orange i don't know i i was in it was like a little chance to express myself. And I got all excited about learning editing and splicing and stuff. And, uh, the film, the teacher in that class, he somehow had like a, like a closet of screenplays. I don't know. I guess at some point, I'm sure he'd come to LA to try to be something and went back there to teach. And he was kind of, he was kind of like a, eh, you know, like Letterman would say, like one of these guys, like, eh, you know, he's just like kind of a wishy washy dude and kind of like, no, I don't know. He was just sort of like a sad sack, I guess. But I guess, you know, he's probably beaten down by life, but whatever. He was, he seemed to be encouraged that at least one kid took his class seriously. And he was like, hey, look, I got my closet full of scripts you want any of these and he had halloween 2 and he had the thing in there and i had somehow this early draft of the thing that was the bill lancaster and it was very weird and it had some of that i don't know i feel like i haven't seen it in like 35 this would have been like 87 88 i guess and i haven't looked at that script but it, it just it was not the movie that we get got and it wasn't as good so obviously something in the magic of carpenter dean condi and rob botin and everything um and i'm sure there was some many rewrites after whatever the hell this guy had but uh might have been the first time I had ever read a screenplay, and I was excited. I'm going to read the thing. This stuff was all just a giant mystery to me. To so, so to read uh, the Halloween two script and the thing script, and to see that like they, you know, there were scenes that weren't in the movies, and, and especially in the case of the thing, it was very different. It, it almost sort of God. I wish I remembered it better, but I want to say it had a little bit of that cheesy. If you've ever seen the the weird CBS cut of the thing from the '80s, and it has, they used to show this on TBS. God knows why they were still showing it, even like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. They have this like weird narration about like he here's mccready he drinks too much he's a pilot and then they would co- be like what is that this isn't from the original movie and they had this one of those really random weird universal tv cuts of the movie and i feel like 
some of the stuff that I remember from the screenplay kind of, maybe, I don't know, it's maybe some Mandela effect where I'm, you know, crossing the wires here with these two things, but I swear there was more like strange narration and it was way clunkier than we got. That movie is, despite being so scary and so, um, dark and nihilistic it's very elegant it's just such a beautifully made movie and god that ending with the two of them with kurt and um keith david just waiting out there to see if one of them turns and the, their breath and the got more surprise i don't know it's just one of the best endings it's so it's ah oh, the way it goes out and that oh it's just man it's just like the perfect movie in a way it's so great and yet i'm still arguing that goofy ass escape from new york has a little bit more of a place in my heart uh and the next one definitely does he's gone on record as saying to some degree christine was a a paycheck job that he wasn't really that into and he beats himself up a fair amount in that book that i keep referencing that you're never going to find they he's like you know i did my best with it i but i swear i messed it up because he was mad at himself that he didn't have the ghost the ghost of george LeBay from the book who kind of is in the car with with arnie so you know that this ghost is in there or it's like his zombie or some kind of i haven't read the book in god since i was like 10 or 11 but uh yeah the corpse of the main the old owner is in the car doing a lot of this and he left all of that out and in this interview he kind of beats himself up for that but he really shouldn't because i think the choices even though that's a pretty great book um the problem with that book is it's sort of limited by the perspective of it if i recall it's one of the ones that has i feel like it's in I shouldn't say this if I haven't looked at it in so many years, but I want to say it's in first person that kind of alternates between telling it from Dennis and telling it from Arnie. Anyway, the way he streamlined that movie, I think is great. And just, that is just such a movie to have grown up with. If you were a young kid, if you liked cars, if you liked Carpenter, um, if you know, the, if you were a bullied kid, this movie has the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate evil in Buddy Repperton, this character who just, I was transfixed by this dude. I mean, one thing Stephen King is great at is memorable bullies, whether it's like Billy Nolan and uh, Carrie or the, the guy, the guy, the kids from it and, um, uh, Keith, the Kiefer Sutherland character from stand by me. He has this, you know, if you were a bullied kid and you read Stephen King, he really, you know, he, you, the scariest thing in those books, reading them as a teenager, reading them in you know my adolescence, might not have even been the ghosts and the haunted hotels and haunted dogs and rabbit dogs and um, you know vampire towns and everything. It was just a dude like Buddy Repperton, just like the ultimate evil. Because I would be reading this around the time I was getting my ass kicked in seventh grade, and kind of everybody had a Buddy Repperton. And one of the things that's so great about this character is he's just. First of all, the actor William Ostrander looks like he's 37 years old. He's in high school and he's got this dipshit crew of like Moochie and Vandenberg and Trelawney. Um, and they're taken by themselves. His posse is kind of a bunch of dorks. Like Moochie kind of looks like an early Artie Lang and the redhead dude from uh, Ted from Friday the 13th Part 2 is in there as Vandenberg and his rolling partner that he goes around in his Camaro listening to Beasts of Burden with is uh, the dude who's getting zapped in the first uh, first scene of Ghostbusters. It's such an awesome crew in that they're <laughs> he's just blatantly bullying and kicking uh, ass in shop class and swearing at the, the shop teacher and calling him the little bald fuck and everything. He's like the ultimate awesome, terrifying villain. And I don't know, everything about that, that shot of Buddy Repperton running down the center of the road with that music. I think my two favorite Carpenter scores are the, the two Alan Howarth one. Well, he did many with Alan Howarth. But this era was like the sweet spot, I think. Halloween 3 
and Christine, those two scores, the synth work, the production, um, it's so unrelenting in Christine, and it really reaches its pitch in that part with Buddy running, racing. That whole stretch with Buddy, and he's want to do the honors, Masseur, and he's at the liquor store, even though he's supposed to be in high school, but he looks 35. There's also a great bit where John Stockwell, as Dennis, gets laid out on the football field, and Buddy and his crew spring up cheering about their own player getting, getting injured. It's one of the funniest things ever. You got Kelly Preston in there looking so smoking as the hot girl who's all over John Stockwell as Dennis, but then Alexandra Paul, the new girl, comes to school. And, man, I, I think you kind of – the guys were making the wrong choice there. I kind of would have gone for Preston. But, um, yeah, she comes to the school, and, you know, all the guys have a crush on her. And then Arnie gets – Arnie is this dork played by Keith Gordon whose hair was already on life support at this point. But we I knew him from Jaws 2, and he was also in a couple of De Palma movies. And he eventually became a pretty good director himself. And the dynamic of Arnie and Dennis was very relatable to me. I think I might have mentioned this. This isn't – who cares? But I, I had a neighbor across the street for a couple of years when I was in elementary school and when I was in seventh grade. And he was a little cooler than me. He was kind of a football player. And he would sort of look out for me in a way where, like, I was Arnie, the clueless nerd with Coke bottle glasses who was, like, motor-mouthing about Dawn of the Dead. And then I had my slightly jockish buddy to kind of, like – kind of keep me reined in reined in a little bit and then when i got to eighth grade this dude moved away and i was full-fledged dork getting my ass kicked all the time so i had a slew of buddy repertons in my junior high uh so i uh related to this dynamic i love that music the car thing i was a kid who loved cars loved drawing cars i this movie was just, it's a weird thing about this movie that's a period piece for god knows what reason it was made in 83 but it's set in 78 which I don't know. At the time, being a kid, I thought that was a world of difference, but it was just kind of a strange choice that's set during the year that Halloween is set. And a lot of credit. Underrated performance, I think, by Keith Gordon. Watching him turn evil as the car sort of turns him from this amiable dork who we first see. If we first see him, he's like racing out with a hefty bag that explodes and he's talking about, oh, maybe I'll just beat off, which is always a weird... Like, he's talking about the girls that he once wishes he could bang and he's like, maybe I'll just beat off. And I'm like, this dude's like 18 years old he hasn't figured that out yet it's always a weird line about that um but as we see him as he gets his confidence he becomes more malicious and more malevolent because of the influence of the car and he, he strangles his dad he's like get your mitts off me motherfucker <laughs> he says, his dad's got this awesome stash looks like a guy who'd pound like a carton of winston's a day i have no idea who that actor was um and there's this great part where he takes, uh, after uh, Dennis has been injured, he takes him out for a ride and Christine to show him what Christine can do. And he's like, what's the matter with this beer? You don't like beer. He's like, so his overacting is so feral. He's doing all these crazy mugging faces. And he's like, death to the shitters of the world, 1979. And he's pounding this weird off-brand Southern Cross type beer while behind the car. And Stockwell's all terrified. He's doing great acting. And uh, he's like... Uh, do you ever think that being part of a parent is trying to kill your kid? <laughs> He's like so overdramatic. He's so menacing and awesome. It's such a great performance. And uh, that scene, you could probably argue that scene at the end goes on forever where the car versus bulldozer. Um, it's pretty hokey but as a kid you just loved it you loved seeing that those great parts which i guess carpenter filmed in reverse with the car con compacts and gets crunched and destroyed and then rebuilds itself that's a great moment earlier on before the finale like when uh after moochie shits on it and they <laughs> reverend 
comes in with his with his giant ass mallet pounding the car in and uh when arnie says show me and they crank up the theme and the car rebuilds itself it's like one of the great moments i i don't know this one was honestly one of my favorites as a kid it's i think it holds up really well i think he's too hard on himself i mean at one point i think he crazily said this is like the least favorite of his own movies it's amazing to think that like Nothing against Village of the Damned, which I think is a... But imagine thinking, like, Village of the Damned is a better job than he did on this. It's just crazy. Starman was, like, to show the lighter side of Carpenter. Um, it's a very warm movie. Very well made. A little bit of Capra to it, almost. Like, I think he said that. There's a little bit of it happened one night in this adventure with Jeff Bridges as the alien in, inhabiting the body of karen allen's husband and it's supposed to be sort of a genteel movie and you have to you know i can't remember if he said this but you can kind of imagine that having been famously trounced by et or at least how he likes to tell the story of like the thing suffered because what audiences really wanted was et you have to wonder if maybe this was a conscious choice to show hey i can do that kind of movie too i'm not just the horror guy um as a kid this is a weird thing to say but i liked this movie as a kid more than E.T. because it was romantic. It has the Carpenter style. I love road movies. And as a kid, I liked adults. I didn't really like watching kids. That's kind of a weird thing. Like as a kid, I wanted to be an adult. I mean, as we've learned on this podcast, I wanted to be Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood. So I don't know when I saw E.T. and like, I don't know, Henry Thomas and Drew Barrymore were not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be like with Snake Plissken or the Warriors on some street with like Puerto Rican muggers and skyscrapers and guns and shit. I was a weird kid, but, um, something about the romance and the road movie aspect and uh, Karen Allen's performance, I guess I found very fetching as a kid. Charles Martin Smith is a sort of like um, sympathetic foil to them. Um, it's not a movie I go back to anymore. There's a great score by Jack Nietzsche to this. The performances are just sort of beautiful in this movie. It's not something you generally associate with Carpenter movies. Obviously, there's big, larger-than-life performances, iconic-type characters like Sam Loomis or Snake Plissken or McCready or Jack Burton or even Roddy Piper, and they live. You know, those are very... Um you know, not broad, but uh, there's a certain shorthand to the, the kind of characters that those are. This is a very lived in, uh, the, especially the Karen Allen role, which is sort of reactive. I mean, she's seeing her husband basically reborn in a form before her eyes and falling in love with this sort of off kilter version of him. It's kind of a tricky thing. You know, obviously the Jeff Bridges, the quirks and stuff are um, it's sort of like almost the the Rain Man thing in a way where the, uh, you know, the Dustin Hoffman thing is, the you know, has a little more of the the quirks to play and stuff, but the, the crews that reacts to him in a way, Karen Allen is sort of, uh, you know, has a little bit of heavier load to carry in this. She's so great in it. And, uh, there's a, an end, the ending of this movie really got to me as a kid. Like I said, I don't go back to this one much anymore. Maybe it's something that I've outgrown or I'm just don't have this, uh, romantic vibe in me if I ever did. But, uh, Carpenter for like the maestro, like the master of widescreen and compositions and sinister framing and stuff. This the when Starman's about to beam up at the end is very with that Jack Nietzsche score going and these these these. Uh, it's about as close and as intimate as his camera really ever got. These shots of Karen Allen watching him go away and it's I don't know. It used to get to me a lot when I was a kid. I found this movie very uh, very affectionate and very sweet and um, yeah and I just and it's. When I get to these, some of these later movies, um, I love the Carpenter always stuck to his guns. And we got, you know, even in kind of what I might argue is lesser form, like Village of the Damned or Ghosts of Mars or even The Ward. Um, he kind of, you know, there was always a blueprint of what a Carpenter movie is. On some level, at least at one point in time, I would look at a movie like Starman and think, God, he was 
you know, this isn't the most typical Carpenter movie. This isn't the one the geek fans are going to go back to a lot, but uh, that he was able to do this and able to do that last shot at the end, um, that or that last scene between uh, Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges, like that he could have that that much emotion and that much uh, uh, warmth in one of his movies. Who knows? You know, if some of these if his tides had gone, you know, his career tides had gone in different ways, what else he could have accomplished? I mean, you think of the directors he was in with, who kind of saw, many of whom started out with genre movies and became huge, and he kind of stayed after the thing, after Big Trouble, uh, to some degree after Memoirs of an Invisible Man. There was always sort of a retreat to, you know, kind of sticking with what he knows, his cert, you know, he had that integrity or that um, hard-headedness to, you know, you know, I don't know if he would have <laughs> sold out more. Who knows if he could have done, um, you know, just different colors in the palette. I don't know. I'm getting kind of off track here, but I uh, just I don't know. Starman, I, I hadn't really just talking about there. I hadn't thought about it much in many years. It's one I I don't know. I never rewatch it. Maybe I should. Uh, maybe you should check it out. It's kind of unsung. Anyway, stop blowharding about that. Um, Big Trouble in Little China is a fan favorite. It's very much a movie for Carpenter fans and. We all obviously get a huge kick out of it. Sort of a blasphemous take on my end is it's not really one of my favorites just because it's so light and it's so goofy. And I didn't get it as much as a kid. I get it now. And really the key to the movie is knowing that Kurt Russell is a buffoon. And Carpenter has said this, that this guy's an idiot. He's always going to be an idiot. And if you watch the movie... His buddy, played by Dennis Dunn, who's great in the movie, is so much cooler and has always kind of knows, knows the score and is competent. He's a kick-ass martial artist and everything, and he it's really his quest, but we're so trained in a way that was sort of, it's kind of subversive almost when you look back at the movie. Because when you're a 13-year-old boy and there's John Carpenter and there's Kurt Russell, you're looking at this movie as Jack Burton, the cool guy who's so funny. And... Sort of like Escape from L.A. and even to some degree what Escape from New York uh, is through adult eyes. You sort of you, you sort of see the the irony and the comedy better. Whereas a kid when I was 13 or 14, when I would have first seen this, I don't think I was equipped to really get some of the levels he's operating at here where Jack Burton is a complete doofus. Um but it's still, you know, it has the great score. <laughs> has Victor Wong, who I really enjoy a lot, who's in the next movie in Prince of Darkness. The synth is great in this one. There's this part in a parking garage where this, this uh, I forget if it's a Camaro or a Firebird, speeds at Kurt and Dennis Dunn super fast, like beyond fast. And the synth is pounding. And those guys have those like 1986 sunglasses on, the bad guys. Uh, it's great filmmaking. It's very entertaining. And this movie's electric and it's colorful. It's just as I said, like when I was a kid, I wanted the nihilism, the darkness of um, Escape from New York, of the thing. And this one was just sort of goofy. But I think with age, I've started to appreciate it more. It's very fun. It's uh, Kim Cattrall's very, Cattrall's very hot in it. Um, and Lopan is up there with like General Zod. And uh, it's just one of my favorite ridiculous villains. I just love um, James Hong in this. Is Lopan and his, the glowing eyes. And he's the Chinese wizard with the big hat. And Dennis Dunn is his girl friend was the girl with the green eyes i don't know it's a lot more fun than i think i gave it credit for as a kid i don't think i've ever entirely come around like the whole carpenter gang has is thinking this is maybe one of his immortal masterpieces i wouldn't rank it up there with like precinct 13 or halloween but i always get a kick out of it when it comes on uh it's a fun movie prince of darkness i just talked about a lot on the 1987 podcast a movie i love like not to repeat myself but i love that these guys are all in college <laughs> i know it's like a an advanced class for uh quantum physics and these are like grad students 
students, but still, like, Jameson Parker with that hog stash looking like Tom Atkins in his maroon Izod sweater putting the moves on Lisa Blount and uh, Peter Jason, who's got to be 62 years old. Um, it has a very sinister um atmosphere the green can of glop the church the maggots in the cup um i i said a lot about it uh in, in a in the last podcast i did but i really do love this one over time i've come to appreciate it more i mean in some degree um prince of darkness is for a horror movie that has you know zombie elements and all this you know bugs and you know gross out effects and vomiting the acid in each other's mouth um it's very cerebral and i said this in the last pod again not to repeat myself but i've never quite grasped all the concepts he's going for here but it's interesting to kind of try to follow along and that nightmare vision you know one of his more haunting images is that vhs or that staticky tape that they can or that memory that they can send back in time to each other when they all start having that same nightmare and you see a little more of it each time and that shot outside of the church is like like the most death metal shot in any movie it's so scary and great and alice cooper is such a it's such an indelible image as that leader of the homeless guys outside uh it's it's really great i would put that in the top tier as i would they live which is so fun and everyone remembers the great fight scene that goes on forever between Roddy Piper and Keith David everyone remembers the iconic lines like the come here to chew bubble you know kick ass and chew bubble gum you know that but um unsung about this movie is how good the two leads are in it and as a kid like probably like a lot of dumbass Carpenter fans I always thought wow man that maybe that could have been Kurt you know what if it was Kurt Russell as John Nada, who, by the way, they never say that name. I've always, I've been, I've been shaking my fist for 34 years. Like they never say the name John Nada. He's completely unnamed in this movie. There's no point in this movie where they say that name. Um, but you know, he comes to LA and you know, he sort of stumbles upon this idea that the consumer society is, you know, really aliens that are leeching off of our planet. It's so great. Like it's so, uh, you know, it's very, I love when, People today talk about like horror and sci-fi didn't used to be political. You know, everything's a woke message now. And this is about as firebrand lefty a movie where the villains are explicitly Republicans who are aliens in disguise leeching off of us and killing our, you know, uh, our homeless people and, uh, uh, you know, taking up all our resources and, uh, you know, filled with greed and everything. It's an explicitly almost, you know close to Marxist type movie, but he has said it's not because he doesn't agree with Marx. He doesn't agree with, you know, he's, he's a capitalist guy. He said he likes making money, but this is just a statement about where we were in the late eighties. And it's a movie that, you know, it was very punchy then. And it really has, you know, it ages very well. Cause this is sort of a timeless, you know, push pull in our society. Um, but all that aside, um, having Roddy Piper in this as a wrestler, when I was, when I saw this movie and when we were young or when we, you know, when this came out, we thought, oh, that's funny. That's a gimmick. That's goofy. Maybe it could have been Kurt Russell. That's so wrongheaded. And I've come to see over time that Roddy Piper's performance in this is kind of a thing of beauty. Like he's not just silly and goofy and maybe has a few awkward line readings. It's, you know, the working man quality and what little, if you know a little bit about Roddy Piper, it adds to it. And, um, Carpenter talked about that. There's that one part where he talks about his dad abusing him and holding a knife to his neck and telling him about the power and glory and stuff. And um, that's, I mean, for someone who wasn't, you know, a Shakespearean actor by any means, he certainly nails that part. And Carpenter himself said in that um, Prince of Darkness book 
that interview book that I keep referencing that Piper just nailed that. Like he's basically talking about his own life and it's something, if you know that and you watch the movie with that in mind and this, the, the like sort of, I don't know, working class integrity and decency that Piper brings to that movie is something that, you know, Kurt being a big, uh, you know, garrulous movie star, lovable guy would have been a completely different, um, but the more blue collar sensibility and lived in experience the Piper brings to it um, adds so much to the movie. And I can't believe I used to think that because he's so great in it. And Keith David is with him every step of the way. Obviously, that fight is funny. You know, this one in some level, some of the effects are a little broad. It's kind of tacky in a way, but I wouldn't change a thing about it. It's, you know, in terms of big ideas and being just a mission state, just like a an epic carpenter thesis on some of his sensibilities and his you know, his cynicism and his dark humor. It's about as good as it gets. It's probably one of my most rewatched ones at the time. I thought, well, it's a little brighter and sheen and not as like aggressively, uh, grim as escape from New York or the fog or whatever. But I, I don't know. I, this is kind of, for me, they live as maybe sort of what big trouble in little China is for a lot of other carpenter diehards. It's the one that's just so much. And maybe in some ways, the last one that's like pure classic original uncut carpenter, I would say from assault on precinct 13 through they live was just when he was firing on all cylinders. And this granted it's lower budget and it's not as big and elaborate as they, as the thing or as a uh, big trouble in little China, but it's, I don't know. It's just kind of the perfect carpenter movie in a lot of ways. And then there was this, there was no carpenter for a few years. Now it was four years, maybe three and a half, which is nothing. Now, you know, tell me who hasn't made a movie in three years. It's probably someone like Ari Aster or something like time flies when you're older, you don't think anything of it. You don't miss these directors. But when you're in high school, as I was and carpenter, I was hanging on everything he did. I was like, when's the next John Carpenter movie? And it's been, and it was three years, which to me represented from, I don't know, maybe like 11th grade until my second year of college. Um, it seemed like, just just like where did he ever go whatever happened to him and when he came back and it was memoirs of an invisible man and it was still it was chevy and it was a big chase movie type thing and i was excited about it but i was like you know i remember from the trailer i was like that doesn't seem very john carpenter it seems pretty light and there's a part you know chevy's wearing like a all these disguises that are a little on the broad side and the movie has a different it's shot by william a fraker so it's not the classic carpenter look and as soon as i remember i went to the old showcase north in pittsburgh here for my new john carpenter movie and right away there's these beautiful shots of like san francisco but has kind of terrestrial movie credits like it didn't have the imposing you know the carpenter credits that we all knew that font the carpenter font and the city and the Alan Howarth and maybe it would be white on black tie you know white on black even if you were lucky you know that's something they don't do anymore we, we imagine I think about this now like people still bumbling into a movie for the first 18 minutes like what used to happen in like 1981 when there's like four minutes of droning synth and a black screen and the carpenter font everyone was probably coming in and like doing a pratfall with their popcorn but uh, they don't really uh, waste your time with three minutes of credits anymore but anyway f- right from the get-go it had a handsome look. Chevy was kind of a hero of mine in this era. He's one of my comic idols and his smarm and his charisma and his sort of Chevy was 
I've talked about other actors like this who can kind of do more than they're appreciated for because Chevy could do the bumbling doofus and then he was sort of dashing. And at one point, hard to believe, he kind of had a Cary Grant type quality in movies like Foul Play. It seems like old times. He was very snappy. He was this handsome, tan, tall guy who was sort of a leading man. And then as his 80s movies went on, he got a little broader, a little, there was a lot of mugging and a lot of tacky movies like Under the Rainbow and Oh, Heavenly, you know, obviously he has the vacations and fletches that are considered his classics, but there were a lot of tacky movies in there. And to some degree, this is a movie that kind of reclaims him as, as a, a pretty valid leading man. And one of the things Carpenter said about this was that Chevy you know, had this book, Chevy was behind this movie. Um, he didn't, he wanted a real movie. He didn't want another one of his dumb comedies. And so they put a lot of effort into this one and the effects, as Carpenter said, these were the effects people that went on to do Forrest Gump. And he was very proud of that. And the, you know, the chase element, Sam Neill is the villain is perfect in this movie. I would say, uh, Chevy's leading man performance is good. Daryl Hannah is the leading lady is um, good. Michael McKean. There's like every everything works for the most part in it. It just is lacking just a little something extra that would put it over the top um, in some degree. If there's a closer comp in his filmography, it's probably this is a little bit more along along the lines of Starman, where it's lighter. It has a romance element. It's sort of like a, a more breezy, good natured kind of chase. It's not as dark and grim. It's got a sort of comedy element. Um, it's so close, but not quite almost there, but I still sort of love it. I didn't like it at the time. I thought it was a little bit melancholy for a comedy and for a chase movie, but uh, I don't know. Over time, I've sort of, it's a very well-constructed movie. Body Bags, 1993. This was a uh, made-for-cable movie, and he did it uh, sort of to play around in makeup, and he gets to do some incredibly terrible acting as our host for these three segments. It, you know, this was for Showtime. It was around the time that HBO was having great success with Tales from the Crypt. Uh, there had been Tales from the Dark Side and things like that, Creep Show, Nightmares, lots of horror anthology kind of stories, and this was to be sort of Showtime's knockoff version, and they, you know, elevated their game by having John Carpenter and then the third there's two segments directed by carpenter there's the third one is directed by tobey hooper who i like to call tobey someone was arguing about how you pronounce his name the other day but um that it, that to me always compromised it more than the f fact that you know he would say oh i had to shoot this one flat in one three three it was for tv it was just a little cable thing i'm playing around in makeup for me the thing that always bothered me is that he didn't even do the third movie which uh tonally is different the toby the the hooper one is um, way gr more grim and unpleasant and has a lot of Mark Hamill's ball sack in it. And he plays a uh, ma a baseball player who loses an eye and he gets a fake eye put in and he's all mean spirited and hateful afterwards and consistently like, you know, terrorizes his wife played by Twiggy, I believe. Anyway, I'm telling you about the one Carpenter didn't direct because that one is so at odds with the sort of goofy good cheer of the first two. Um, Carpenter stars in this as our guide through these. He's sort of the ripoff Crypt Keeper. He gets to be in makeup. You have you are subjected to the very unfortunate sight of a barefoot John Carpenter, and he does bad puns, and you know he drinks formaldehyde. And the three, the first two stories are one he directed that's like sort of a Halloween update, but it doesn't have a masked killer. Instead, you get Robert Carradine, who kind of became part of the later Carpenter rep company. You know, I talked earlier about how you had how you had Adkins and Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis, Cyphers, Adkins, Darwin Justin, and you get to the later movies, you get Peter Jason and uh stacy keach and um 
and who did I just and Robert Carradine? Um, and you know uh, that part's okay. The real the real tre- the real gem of this is the second part, which is Stacy Keach as a vain middle aged guy going bald, and he's got this babe for a girlfriend played by Sheena Easton, and he's losing his hair, and he goes to this uh, sort of like shady place, hair transplant place, and his hair becomes starts to grow uh, incredibly, and it turns out to be an alien plot. And if you've ever gone through baldness as I have or gone through losing your hair it's very funny it's very relatable and traumatic and the uh i don't know it's a very tongue-in-cheek light segment for carpenter but it's probably it's definitely the best part of this movie (laughs) starting with body bags he really goes heavy on the uh whammy bar guitar i don't know what got into him he started doing this more blues rock i guess you get a little bit of that with the kind of the blues riff of they live a little bit of the harmonica but by the time you get to body bags he's doing this full-on like kind of open E chord lunge riff, you know, chunk riff kind of thing with a he's laying on solos and stuff. And uh, you get it at the end credits of Body Bags, and he really, uh, when you get to In the Mouth of Madness, the opening credits were, you know, it's this kind of cool montage of a book being published and printed and along the conveyor, all the different stages of a, of a book going to print. And he's ripping leads. And I just picture him with like the Winston hanging out and shredding in his, in his garage or something. And when I first saw In the Mouth of Madness, Madness which is probably... Um, a, you know, a really great Carpenter movie. I didn't appreciate it fully the first time, I think, because right off the bat, uh, not that I'm, you know, I'm a big metal head and everything, and I like metal bands, and it was cool as these went on, how he started to, you know, when he got to Ghosts of Mars, he had Buckethead on there, and Steve Vai, and Anthrax, and um, I'll talk about that in a second, but uh, he, he's just, like, ripping on the guitar, and I was like, what happened to the synth? And I, uh, it didn't have the, the white-on-black credits anymore, and it didn't, you know, it's, it very much had that Kibby look, and he had the effects done by that KNB, who, I don't know, compare, nothing against them. I know they're immortal. They've done so many masterpieces. But some, somehow in the later Carpenter movies, that that mix of the Kibby cinematography and the style of K&B makeup, uh, like Greg Nicotero, those guys who are masters at their form or whatever, but it just looked a little garish compared to, compared to escape from New York or compared to the thing. I couldn't get with the times, I guess. And these little, completely lame cosmetic things uh, at the first viewing uh, blocked me from realizing how good and how smart in the mouth of madness is, how Carpenter it is, how he's playing with these themes that he's talked about from, um, uh, from Lovecraft and the Quater mass things that he talks about from the you know, Nigel Neal in the sixties BBC type of uh, horror. And uh, Sam Neill's great in it. That's probably my favorite thing about the movie. He plays this, you know, he's an investigator who's hired to debunk these, you know, bullshit claims and fraud cases. Very rarely do you get a horror or sci-fi movie where the lead stubbornly refuses to believe any of the supernatural bullshit for as long into the movie as Sam Neill is in this. And that's why I love it because so many, you know, the history of horror movies to me is a history of like gullible characters who are just like, you know, take it, you know, so casually that the world is supernatural would in real life. If you ever saw anything 
uh, remotely supernatural, you would instantly be in a mental asylum. The whole world would be upended. I mean, no offense to people who believe in these things, but there would be mass hysteria and people would be going nuts in the streets. And so for the bulk of In the Mouth of Madness, Samuel is very disbelieving. And even as like, you know, he's seeing all these crazy, you know, remnants from the other world and the apocalypse coming and the town that's haunted and crazy and this these horrible displays of violence he's still going special effects trick photography you people are the best like he does he's not buying any of this bullshit and he's paired with a very spacey julie carmen who gives a really strange performance it's the end of everything john she's really weird and stoned and her voice is bizarre and she wears big white pants and there charlton heston hires them to go look into this missing author Sutter Kane obviously you can tell by that name it's sort of a riff on his old buddy Stephen King and this horror author whose books his you know so many people have started to believe in his horror reality that reality itself has been upended and it's a very clever premise it very much he's talked and other people have talked about this being kind of the third part of an apocalypse trilogy of sorts with the thing with Prince of Darkness Um, I don't know that it's quite as great as those two movies but it is you know kind of the last time I think he was firing on all cylinders it's a very clever story I think that Sam Neill performance really puts it over the top some of the imagery in it is very unsettling Jurgen Prock now as uh, as Sutter Kane is is a delight in the movie there's a great part at the end where he uh, he goes you ever tell you my favorite color was blue and Sam Neill wakes up on a bus and it has this beautiful blue sheen and he starts screaming and ends up in the asylum at the end like I was like finally somebody actually goes nuts from all the crazy shit that happened in these movies it's got a great cast and um yeah it's one that i misjudged on my very first viewing but i think it's kind of rich in ways and it kind of builds it has built over time i've built an appreciation for it for sure um and it was immediately followed i guess because i think maybe it sat on a shelf for just a notch and then village of the damned came out immediately afterward and in a weird way when i first saw these maybe two months apart or whatever it was in 95 i almost preferred village of the damned because it seemed almost like a little bit more of an official carpenter horror movie it had a little bit more of the vibe a little bit more of the music or the look i don't know i might have been nuts but I might be the world's only person who's even interested in Village of the Damned. It's generally written off as a lame remake that he kind of half-assed. It's sort of cold. It's sort of dreary. It's very much been called a cable movie or remarked upon that it has a made-for-showtime or made-for-cable type feel. And it does. And when it came out, it came out, uh, I believe, right before Christopher Reeve's um his horse riding accident that paralyzed him. So it was sort of, I, I'm just going to be blunt. Christopher Reeve in this movie is terrible. And in a very funny way that I love. And, uh, I used to love kind of ripping on his very bizarre performance. And then immediately thereafter he was injured and you couldn't make fun of Christopher Reeve. Cause he was, you know, this is a horrible tragedy and he didn't want to say there's a lot of parts in this movie where he is awesomely embarrassing at the end of this movie. This is the old midwich uh, cuckoos or whatever, which I guess they've done. Kermode was reviewing the new version they've done for British television, which I'd like to see. Um, and most people thought this was no great shakes and that it had a very 
kind of cheese ball cast. It's, these people are all legends now, but somehow in 1995, Christopher Reeve, Mark Hamill, and Kirstie Alley, and Mark, Michael Pere, uh, was a little second tier, shall we say. Nothing, no offense to any of them. I mean, obviously, Mark Hamill has, has had this enormous resurgence, but uh, in this, he's playing the world's sleaziest looking priest. He looks like a priest who's like doling out crystal meth on the set, on the set of a porno movie or something. He's very sleazy, and Christopher Reeve is the town doctor and of course there's this thing where the kids all the women give birth at once and the kids have glowing eyes and they have supernatural powers and the kids kind of take over the town and uh christopher reeve at the end has to go and square off with the kids and he does he does so uh in one of the great uh images of the mid 90s by building a brick wall in his mind that the kids can't in- infiltrate his brain and you see literally a brick wall like carpenter literally it's it's a little on the nose flashing to an image of a brick wall while christopher reeve does horrible mugging face it's like he's contorting and going crazy and looks like he's taking a dump and he's sweating and mugging and he's great at it. And he has to, you know, face off and he comes back in every few minutes. Someone gets else gets killed and he comes in like a big like he's the, uh, you know, the disapproving taskmaster. He's like more death. Come on. He's like, he's like, you should feel you should feel something is and he pounds a table. He's like without feelings, you're nothing. And it's a very it's a very um, the performance is pitched at the uh, level of wrong again Zod for 95 five minutes uh i sort of love this movie this is george buck flower that drunk from escape from new york the homeless guy from they live and he comes in with his mop and he's gonna take on the kids and he goes i know your game which i used to go around saying i don't know why i love that catchphrase it's kind of cold kind of unpleasant uh kind of unremarkable but in some ways i love it it's just so chintzy and second tier and like i made note to earlier it is shot in that northern california uh you know, the the area from the fog, the Marin County look, and it's a handsome looking but kind of lazy Carpenter movie that has no particular admirers. But I don't know. I just wanted to give it its due because no, I've never seen anyone talk about Village of the Damned or Christopher Reeve's insane performance in it. And the baby in the jar of formaldehyde is quite an image too, uh, like the the alien baby, what it looks like. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not good. Don't go watch it on account of me. But I don't know. I guess I, I would say I have a little bit of a soft spot for Village of the Damned. We're into the home stretch now with Escape from L.A., a movie that, I don't know, in some ways I might call it, um, if Escape from New York is my Star Wars, Escape from L.A. is definitely the Phantom Menace. It was, you know, a very comparable passage of time, too. Much like Star Wars was a movie of my childhood, you know, youngest childhood, that 15 years later, here's, you know, let's pick up the story again. And I guess back then in, in the recent past, there had been things like the two Jakes, the Chinatown sequel and Godfather three and Chinatown and Godfather were movies. I watched a lot on VHS and on HBO when I was really maybe 10 or 11, 12, but um, they felt before my time, you know, maybe in part because they were period pieces, but they came out when I was like one or two years old. They weren't movies that I felt like I had grown up with, um, you know, like Star Wars was definitely a movie the kids all you know saw when they were really young. Escape from New York was that for me too. So 15 years, that passage of time when I was you know 22, 23. I was 22 when they announced it. I remember it was in like Movie Line or sometimes my dad would bring home the Variety because no one at the Pittsburgh news station <laughs> wanted to hear about the Bafo box office and Helmer and all the you know Variety jargon bullshit. And I read and I was like, what they're making an Escape from New York sequel? How how how? Because now that we have the internet, we know what cult sensations are, and, and there's like a, you know, we feel connected to other geeks, and we know fan culture. You didn't know that in 1995. I mean, these were the earliest days of the internet and uh, chat rooms and, you know, 
for the most part, you were off on, at least I was off on my own. I didn't know there were other people who still even thought of Snake Plissken 15 years later. And then when the movie came out and kind of bombed, maybe there weren't that many or as many as I thought. I remember like Movie Line or whoever, wherever I read this, had like a snarky comment, like, would they love to be on the a fly on the wall of that pitch meeting? How the hell they sold bringing back Snake Plissken? Like, they had an attitude of like, who cares? But for me, you know, this is my favorite childhood movie and it was coming and it happened that they were filming it in LA obviously um as I was moving out to California you know to be a superstar and I wanted to work on crews and on sets and be a PA and I had no idea how to go about any of that because this was pre-internet again I didn't know anybody out here I just drew I got in my Cavalier and drove across the country and that's you know knowing nobody staying in hotels and I remember I was in like some best west no it was like a days in and I had a my manual typewriter you know it was before phones and internet and I didn't all I did was I found in the you know what was filming around town and one of the trades and I, I knew it was you know paramount movie so i wrote like i found the name of the ad or some dude named like christian della pena whoever the fuck that was and i busted out the typewriter i'm like dearest mr della pena i hope this finds you well and i'm writing them like the civil war era writing with my quill style letter about how i'm the biggest escape from new york fan and if you could see it in your heart to get me on as a production assistant and or i could be a gopher so it was so embarrassing and earnest and had no idea what to do with it except i knew the street address of Paramount Pictures was like 5555 uh, Melrose Avenue so I just mailed it to that like CO a skip from LA and of course <laughs> obviously it never got to anybody I'm sitting there waiting by a rotary phone in a days in and uh, uh, West Covina waiting for my big break on escape from LA nevertheless when the mo- and then I bombed out in LA I went home and I saw it that summer in Pittsburgh and I was so excited and I loved it in a way um, it's obviously lighter it's goofier than the original intentionally so um, at first viewing it didn't bother you know some of the terrible terrible cgi in this movie which really sinks it like if you've ever gone to like an early screening a test screening of something or in my case i work in kind of post-production on tv shows and a lot of very famous shows i could name i see them in very compromised early form like they'll have temporary graphics for the effects it'll be very you know, raw footage, you know, with green screen and actors in mocap suits and, you know, animated, you know, cheesy cell animation of what's eventually going to be a monster, a dragon escape from LA was that, except that was what they put in the fucking theater. Like it looks, it's the one thing you cannot get around in this movie. You can talk about how it's clever. It kind of turns elements of the original on its head. It's a funny satire of things like LA. I think some of it's kind of curd and carpenter humor. That's a touch broad, like the, the surgeon Jen, General of Beverly Hills and, you know, the tsunami snake and the um, maps to the stars, Eddie. It's really corny. And uh, in a way that I, very first viewing, I just remember I was just so awed by the fact that Kurt was back, that he had the costume, the eye patch, and they sort of replicated it's very much the same movie, except sort of heightened and sillier, you know, instead. And, you know, there's like a replacement. Everything you kind of liked in New York, they just do over. And, you know, in ways he's talked about how if, you know, you think of like Rio Bravo and then you think of El Dorado, it's kind of the same movie, but it worked the first time. Why not? And just change a few things around instead of, you know, Lee Van Cleef, you get Stacey Keach instead of Tom Atkins, you get Michelle Forbes, um, you know, the various people he meets along the way. I made note of this earlier, but season Hubley is now Valeria Golino and pretty much beat for beat. It follows everything from the original, except on these horribly cheesy backlot sets with 
you know, rubble that looks so fake. It's supposed to be the aftermath of this bombed out Los Angeles, but you never forget that you're like in some, you know, bad back lot in, or some, you know, somewhere in like Northridge with like just some, you know, rubber, uh, with just like fake rubble and, you know, stuff that looks like styrofoam. And there's all these like snake will walk through all these bazaars that look very phony in the back. You'll see this awful CGI that looks like a cartoon and uh, the CGI. Like I keep going back to it, but like, you know, in a theater, it was like, whatever. I, I don't somehow in the theater, it wasn't as egregious as when I got to this, you know, when I got this, like, I had to rent it from Blockbuster a few months later, had to buy the VHS and then eventually DVD came along and on home video, it looks even brighter and phonier and worse. And it takes you out of the movie so much that even if you suspend disbelief and say, you know, this is a tongue in cheek, John Carpenter movie, it's meant to be a little phony. You just cannot like that part at the beginning where snake gets in that little like underwater submersible thing and goes through the underwater Coenga pass and the, the shark from the jaws universal Oh, that shark is like, it's a literal cartoon and you're just like wincing, trying to like, it's a movie you kind of have to watch, like squinting your eyes, blocking out how phony this looks. And when he encounters um, Peter Fonda rolls in as this sort of old surfer dude who helps Snake out at a critical point and Snake surfs along with Peter Fonda, high five in each other alongside of a, of a car of Steve Buscemi's car. And you're trying so hard to reconcile this with your feelings for the old one. And it's just so goofy and looks so ridiculous. Um, over time, I've grown to love that about it. I get a big kick out of it. I love Cuervo Jones, this cheeseball villain played by George Corafas, who who takes Snake out to a basketball court where uh, Snake is man. He he should have tried out for the NBA because he's he's hitting threes from full court. Uh, and then you hear that shot clock. It's so ridiculous and so cheap looking. And they're inside the L.A. Coliseum, but like Carpenter sprung for about nine extras. It's one of those movies where the crowd scenes you can tell they just put him in one corner they had about 12 guys or something and shot it upward so you could tell you know you can tell that no one is in the entire rest of the stadium and it basically looks like a birmingham usfl uh stadium in the current season of the usfl uh it's so cheesy it's so kind of funny uh i love um the, the the scene with Pam Greer is sort of like a she's a trans character that Snake used to know and in the originally makes note to like Fresno Bob and these phony characters that he and Brain knew back in the old days. So here like Pam Greer is Hershey uh, or something isn't it something like Hershey but she really was Carjack Malone when she was before she transitioned and Kurt's like yeah you me and Texas Mike O'Shea it's so stupid it's so Carpenter and in that part if you rewatch Escape from L.A. that part with Pam Greer. Listen in the background. I would love to have this music. There is this horrible music that's apparently, someone helped me find it on Twitter, uh, called JC's Blues, and it's... It's Carpenter just wailing on like the worst, cheesiest guitar soloing ever. And it's, he's like hitting it with the whammy bar and doing dive bombs and shit while Snake's doing the scene about how they're going to, uh, what do you call it? Uh, glider into the whatever rip, what they call the Happy Kingdom or whatever ripoff of Disney. This horrible music is just pure Carpenter. It's not on the official soundtrack. The soundtrack in this movie, however, was, both kind of awesome to me, but kind of blasphemous because it had really cool tracks by like White Zombie and Tool and um, Tori Amos and Stabbing Westward and Sugar Ray before Sugar Ray did fly and did, you know, uh, they're sort of like 90s 
you know, pop sounds. Uh, Sugar Ray was almost sort of a credible rock punk type band and some, not that credible, but um, they had an album called Lemonade and something that I remember I liked and it had naked Nicole Eggert on it. So, and I thought Mark McGrath was a cool guy. So Sugar Ray was on this. I was like, I got I was like an early fan of Sugar Ray and I was like, there's a Sugar Ray song on there. I was so excited about that. At the same time, you're not getting as much synth and this is Alan Howarth is of course long gone. You got Shirley Walker and Carpenter and the score sort of, a more traditionally uh, instrumental sound mixed with like this kind of the Carpenter blue, the blues guitar, but he's throwing in a harmonica with it. And it's all so much sillier than the original. It's a goofy movie. I talked earlier about that ending. It's very nihilistic. Cliff Robertson is very funny. It's kind of like at the time, I guess he was supposed to be like a Pat Robertson thing, but you can, you can fill in in the 25 years since any number of like conservative or Christian blowhards or maybe even Trump or somebody that he's kind of, I don't know, this sort of, uh, it, I wouldn't say it was predicted because there was always a guy like that who's kind of ridiculous and over the top or, you know, some of the characters that were in mid 90s politics, but it still holds up. And of course, like Cliff Robertson's like hiding under the desk when the shit goes down. They give uh, Stacey Keats like a plant to water and he's has like a very strange beard and ponytail. And there's this funny part, you know, with the great part at the beginning of New York when um, that I love when uh, Lee Van Cleef and uh, Tom Atkins lay out all those weapons and, it look, and Robert Rodriguez has ripped this part off many times. You see that table full of weapons and that music that just goes dun, 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 dun. And, and here uh, they kind of do a version of that, but it's so corny and there's a hologram involved. And then at the end, they've given Snake his weapons. He's got a big machine gun. And he's like, you mean I don't need you? And Stacey Keach goes, no. And he goes, good. And he unloads a, a magazine on them. But of course, like they're like, we, we knew you'd try that hot shot. So it's loaded with blanks. So it's like, oh, man, that gag. Uh, it's ridiculous. I love the part with the tin can up in the air where Clint very much or Kurt very much summons Clint Eastwood with the I'm going to give you assholes a chance it's so funny the draw and then he and he shoots him while you know doing the countdown it's it's great fun it's kind of an indiana jones moment almost uh shoot the swordsman but uh yeah it's great fun it's just terrible but i love it very much and have grown to like it even more i can put it on any time and i'm so entertained by its badness and it was kind of like what what uh how phantom menace was we at first you were just like i can't believe there's a new star wars i can't believe there's a new escape from new york so you were just awed by the experience of going to, at least i was i mean this was a bomb but uh then you were like uh what about those effects what about this and that and then with time i've taken on a certain acceptance of it and it is what it is and uh I don't know. In a way, it's sort of, I mean, certainly certainly the last big budget they ever gave him. So it's worth it just for that. And for one more, I mean, I wish we would have gotten a third Snake Plissken movie, anything. Um, and Kurt's hair, by the way, is a disappointment in this because they give him extensions. And it's not, it was whatever his hair was for executive decision wasn't quite at Snake level. And this was his next movie a few months later. And so they, they I don't know, he's kind of got like a Captain Ron thing going that isn't the original uh, real Kurt Russell hair from 1981. Anyway, on to vampires vampires and ghosts of mars could basically be taken in tandem to close this out they sort of have the same issues the same pros and cons um i talked just a second ago about robert rodriguez and when robert Rod rodriguez came on the scene um there were little homages in his movies to to carpenter you could tell he had a lot of affection for that era of filmmaking for that type of filmmaking things in el mariachi desperado especially and from dusk till dawn is dusk till dawn is very much a carpenter movie i know it was written by tarantino those are two guys who obviously you know 
revered John Carpenter. It's made literal in uh, Dust Till Dawn because that kid wears a Precinct 13 shirt. That's another one of those things we're watching that in 96. I was like, whoa, his shirt says Precinct 13. You know, I was unaware of like this whole, you know, network subculture of geeks who love this stuff and had these references. Um, and then like later that year when, or maybe in a couple of years when all those movie websites and once I remember like in the early days of the internet, Harry Knowles on ain't a cool just made a passing reference to the guy with the sacks from lost boys, which now is the kind of reference that gets tossed around everywhere. You know, that Seth MacFarlane type uh, sensibility that we all have with this all, you know, same, same references from eighties movies and cheesy nineties, early, you know, geek stuff and but nobody i never knew anyone making rap i was like someone else knows about the saxophone guy it was so mind-blowing to me that there were other people out there who loved this stuff before the internet anyway um you could tell that rodriguez was taking some things from carpenter what i thought was weird and a little disappointing about vampires and ghosts of mars is carpenter seems like he was returning the favor and these two movies almost seem like robert rodriguez movies to me i don't know if that's true i don't know if he was enamored of rodriguez or he was kind of feeding off what was in the general creative ether at the time to quote there's a quote by darren aronofsky was, oh god i'm not even gonna get into it. one time he said there was a movie called house of sand and fog and there was a shot of jennifer connelly that was the same shot as was in uh requiem for a dream and they asked darren aronofsky and he goes maybe we're all feeding from the same connective ether and it's so pretentious i would never say the same creative ether but I think of it all the time because of that leaden quote from him. Anyway, when you watch Vampires, it's got this Southwestern flavor. It's got that kind of like Southern blues rock guitar. Um, it's very, you know, it's kind of in some ways as close. I'm thinking this through. I mean, there's always so much Western and Hawks influence, but Vampires comes very close to almost being a Western. Something Carpenter has said he always wanted to make one. He just... Um, you know, it wasn't the, that wasn't the type of movie that was in at the time. So he did. And he said something like he didn't want to mess it up because he had so much reverence for the great Westerns and he didn't want to be ironic about it. And so he kind of did his version and applied um, elements of Western storytelling elements of Howard Hawks, obviously maybe some Ford even, but, uh, and um, to, to genre movies within sci-fi and within horror and within action and escape from New York precinct 13, this Probably, I guess you could say, comes closest. It's in the southwestern town. There's basically literal duels. This relationship between James Woods, James Woods and the priest, and also James Woods and um, uh, Daniel Baldwin is his buddy that's sort of adversarial. And at the end, they do a little via condios that, you know, they'll live to see another day where they'll have their, you know, their real uh, duel. We'll, we'll just have to wait. It's sort of very much El Dorado to some degree and just the locale of it. But where's, but, um, yeah, it feels like secondhand Carpenter. It feels like Carpenter doing Rodriguez doing Carpenter. The movie has a slightly different sheen. It has that, you know, Rodriguez's movies were very orange and red and, like I say, very, you know, American Southwest. And Carpenter kind of seems to be aping that look to some degree here. I don't know. I, I hate to say it. I don't. It's something I've never wanted to admit because I, it has James Woods. James Woods is a force of nature who's very funny in this movie. He's at his most James. If you hate James Woods, you'll hate this movie. But in this era, I, you know, before long, before whatever's politics, whatever, James Woods was always one of my favorite actors that the, the snappiness, the short fuse is intense 
intensity, his kind of smarm. There's a movie called Cop that I love where he's this cop on the edge and he's 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 paired with this feminist uh, played by Leslie Ann Warren. It's much like his reaction takes to Deborah Harry and Videodrome, just playing this like snarky asshole. You know, he always seems so snappy and smart and talking a mile, mile a minute. And. I don't know. He's one of my favorite actors. I mean, he's certainly been permanently sidelined from cinema, which to me is a shame because I, he was so great. And this is one of the very few movies where he gets to be the lead and gets to be an action star instead of like the peripheral guy on the side or the villain like he was in The Specialist or White House Down. This is full, the full James Woods experience, just full asshole, full of insults. And that's the best thing about it, I think. And some of the stuff with Alec, uh, with uh, Daniel Baldwin, I like the Western relationship between the two of them. You got... um what's her name from Twin Peaks? Cheryl Lee. She's been turned by the vampire Valak played by Terry Quicksilver Silver from uh, Cobra Kai and Karate Kid, Thomas Ian uh, Griffith, Griffin, Griffith. Um, It's a fun movie. It's just so stupid. It's so broad. And I don't know, these movies, like I said earlier, they seem garish in a way that his earlier movies, like The Thing was so elegant and Christine even was so elegant and so crisp and the way it was edited and it had such atmosphere these are very i think he had a certain you know he had had enough big you know disappointments of like the thing the ones i rattled off by the time i think escape from la was maybe like the last like i said they just said a minute ago they gave him his big budget it didn't work out so he again does the retreat and he does these smaller movies that are just kind of you know fun hokey you know special effects are a little you know, gross out. There's one great riff in this. I love this. You know, the, uh, James Woods has this team of vampire hunters and they're all played by very colorful character actors who get dispatched almost immediately in the beginning of this movie in this motel massacre by Valak. Um, and James Woods has to go take care of their bodies and he has to go drive stakes in all of them so they don't turn and hack up their, their limbs and stuff to, and burn the motel or whatever he does. There is this blues riff, this hard riff there, this like opening chunk riff that is so great. There is the last great. Um, but as his movie music goes, this is kind of the last. I don't know. I really love that riff. It's just great. I think about it all the time. I always try to play it on guitar. Um, and then once, you know, his team is dead and then there's Cardinal Alba played by Maximilian Schell. And then he pairs him with this, whoever that weenie he is, is a very funny foil for James Woods to just rip on and make fun of. And that's all the fun stuff in this movie. I think it's very overlong. I don't think it has any suspense. I don't think it's scary at all. I don't know. I think this one is kind of a dud. I've always hated saying that because, you know, you want to love any Carpenter movie. I'm just happy it exists. But this is, I would say this is maybe one of my least favorite. This might be my least favorite. Ghost of Mars, the next one, is the same issues the same things haunted it's very obviously being a mars movie this is very red looking and again it just has like a discount rodriguez feel to me it has a fun cast and i I remember ice cube did an interview once where he said he was so excited to do this because john carpenter was like a hero to him because of escape and because of halloween and he said he took all his boys to see all the other guys his, his buddies whatever uh his crew to see this when it came out he said and he talks about how he was so pissed when he saw it he's like i was so hot watching that 
that thing, meaning angry, like he was all worked up. He's like, I had all this faith in John Carpenter. It looked like some shit that should have come out in 1979. He's sort of acknowledging that it looks very dated, but that's fine. It's a throwback movie. He, uh, Ice Cube and his red camo Zubas or whatever those are looks awesome in this. He's got a great rapport with Natasha Henstridge, who's very beautiful. And he, those two together are great. It's very much Assault on Precinct 13. It's the same relationship as Austin Stoke Bishop. Austin Stoker was Bishop, Ethan Bishop in Escape from... I, I couldn't remember that earlier, what Austin Stoker... And it's Bishop and uh, Napoleon Wilson, it's Desolation Williams and whoever uh, Natasha Hedstrom plays here. Very much the same relationship, very much the same kind of movie. They've gone to Mars for God knows what reason. Structurally, this movie's a mess. There's all these flashbacks, sort of flashbacks within flashbacks that are very awkwardly written. Like, they go up there and they meet Joanna Cassidy, and she's like, well, I can't tell you myself, but I heard what so-and-so said, and it was three days, and it dissolves into a flashback of someone telling someone else's... It's like, couldn't you just tell that in a linear way? It's very strange. There's a lot of awful dissolves that make it look like he didn't film enough stuff. There's, it's a very clunky filmmaking, and again, you're given a, a, a long leash or a long, you know, a lot of, uh, giving him a lot of leeway on this because he's John Carpenter, but you can tell the filmmaking is not as snappy as it used to be, but it's still very fun. And, uh, Jason Statham's in there. His hair is very much on life support. Pam Greer is back. Robert Carradine's back. Um, it's got this ridiculous score by Anthrax and Buckethead and, and Carpenter. But, um, the one thing I'll get to that score in a second, but the one thing that might put this slightly ahead of vampires for me and that they both have a very outlandish villain. And I just made note to Valak in vampires, but ghost of Mars has big daddy Mars, the most absurd villain of all time. He's this Martian zombie guy who has a sword and this like Excalibur breastplate and face makeup that makes him look like the demon from the exorcist and long, heavy metal hair. He's got, and he's like decapitating people. And he speaks in this Martian nonsense, sense language and all his followers are like oh, 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 oh clapping for him as he stands up on a hill going oh no 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 it's like just bullshit he's just, just yelling gibberish and he's so ridiculous and funny and so bizarre that guy kind of he was a stuntman i guess but he's big daddy mars and then like last year he was the main villain 20 years later in that army of the dead uh was that what's called the Zack snyder movie i'm sure it's an homage to this but i couldn't believe that guy was still in the shape to do that but he's a huge dude he's very imposing that ridiculous language with the shouting is so funny and they crank up that you know, again, that heavy metal guitar. My favorite thing on earth is the extras of Ghost of Mars on the DVD. There's an extra called Scoring Ghost of Mars where you see Carpenter in this super baggy sweatshirt sitting around smoking cigs at the control board watching Anthrax rip this like one note just over and over. And then Buckethead comes in and he's got the bucket of chicken. He's got his KFC bucket on his head. I love, I mean, obviously there's cameras there, but I love the idea that even in private recording sessions, he He's still repping the KFC bucket and the, the stupid mask and Carpenter's watching. And my favorite part of it is Steve Vai comes in and he's like, Carpenter's like, just rip. And he gives him this, he's smoking a cig and he, he, he eggs him on, giving him this roll it, you know, roll it motion. And Vai is whipping out the most tuneless racket. He's just, I just guitar soloing to me is the funniest shit ever. Like uh shredders and, and whammy bar guys. And he's just, a, it's so horrible. And Carpenter's like, he's like, that's cool. That's cool. And then telling, none of that is in the movie at all because it's so bad um i think that extra the extra of scoring ghost of mars from the dvd and big daddy mars put that one over the top for me a little ahead of vampires um they're both 
awesomely mediocre, but they're so fun. I'm so glad we have them. I made notes that he did a couple of Masters of Horror. I forgot to mention the second one was called Pro-Life with Ron Perlman. It's sort of an abortion satire. I All apologies again to the brother McWeeny, but I don't remember it very well. I'm so sorry, Drew. I, I don't know. I think I didn't like it that much. I did like the first one a lot. Um, and then... Uh, the Ward. We get The Ward was his last, what was that, 2009, 2010? It sort of was underseen at the time. It's completely forgotten. I saw it once. I don't think it played many theaters. I remember I had to watch it on POV. I had to rent it off my cable converter box. And it just felt so deflating to see a Carpenter movie that to me was, it kind of looked like a TV movie. He didn't do the score. It didn't quite have all, you could tell like none of his crew was really on this one. It was filmed sort of anonymously. It had some fun quirks. Jared Harris is in it. I don't remember it very well. I remember he commented on how he was happy making it because he got to just hole up with a bunch of hot babes, as he described the very pretty actresses in this movie, led by Amber Heard, who is... Uh, maybe this will come back around. or Some people want to watch this out of Amber Heard completism. But, uh, you know, she plays a... Uh, you know, she's very hot, and Amber Heard is in a mental institution being tortured. So, I don't know, maybe this gets a lot of play in the Johnny Depp house. It's like, <laughs> this suddenly became johnny's favorite movie uh watching amber heard get you know this torture by jared harris in the in the nut house but um i don't know (laughs) insert your own hack jokes there but uh i don't know i think i've taken up two hours of your time and i don't remember the ward enough it's a movie that's hard to come by i don't think you can stream it anywhere like i said i saw it one time kind of wish you would have gone out with maybe one better or maybe if the ward had been a little punchier it would be something i'm still glad we got it i'd love to see it again and um yeah, you know, I, I just, there's the full lightning round. There's John Carpenter, and I don't know, it's sort of fitting, I guess, if I just sort of trail off on the ward, because that's, you know, God. I don't know, sometimes you're talking about Carpenter, and it feels like you're talking about a guy who's still alive and still working, but it feels like you're talking about him in the past tense, and maybe that's an issue, as I said earlier, that's the fans expecting too much, or um, I don't want to end on that note. I mean, you'll always have Halloween, you'll always have Precinct 13 and, and the thing, and, you know, it was so fun going through those. I'm sorry this one ran long. I just, I don't know, when I talk about John Carpenter, I have so much affection, and it is he is one of the few directors I feel like I feel extremely not to you know not to be a blowhard but i kind of know i feel like i know what i'm talking about to some degree and i just light up getting a chance to talk about these so if i reminded you of any great moments or maybe some you haven't seen and now you're gonna watch village of the dam to see christopher reeve i hope you have fun i hope this was entertaining to you in some way again i apologize for these being so long i my original vision was I would do like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And sometimes I get on and start babbling and I don't know, it turns out like this. So that was John Carpenter. I hope you uh, had fun and uh, Hey, thanks a lot. Have a good day. All right. Bye.